At the signal, time will be out of joint. Hello and welcome to Weird Signal, the podcast about all things eerie, weird and hauntological. I'm Sean and I'm here as ever with Lucy, though... Why did not... you say it like that? <laughs> okay, I'm going to start that again now. So. No, 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 let's just press on. Hi, I'm Lucy, I co-host. But Hello and... Hello, and welcome to Weird Signal, the podcast dedicated to all things eerie, weird, and hauntological. I'm Sean, and as ever, I'm here with Lucy, and making his second appearance in the Weird Signal Extended Cinematic Universe, we have Max Feldman. Max, remind everybody what it is you do, and indeed why you are here. First of all, let us say this is one of the privileges of my life to guest two times on Weird Signal. You're the but, first uh, guest I, we've had back. First, yeah. Oh dear, that's that's. We've that's, burnt that's a lot of bridges. We've burnt a lot of bridges. <laughs> uh, we've got some real. We've got we've got our sights on um on on some fair fairly major bridges to destroy. We're a bunch of we're a bunch of little mothmans around here. <laughs> um, I am for any of you who uh, w- weren't around for the um, life force episode. I am the arts editor of Kensington, Chelsea, and Westminster Today. And uh, I'm also, in my spare time, a French revolutionary fanatic. Um, and so it just it just felt right to invite me back, from what I'm told. Max is a nerd. Yes. <laughs> but then again, so are we. A nerd. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. And do we have an episode in store for you today. So, yeah, I guess the main subject that we're going to be talking about is um, the French Revolution. Uh, that being the uh, revolution that took place in 1792. It was 1789 uh, is when it began. Uh-huh. But there was there were several mini revolutions within the revolution. Yeah, yeah. I it, mean, this is this is kind of one of the things that I um, I actually flagged up in the extremely brief plan that I put together this morning, which <laughs> is that the, the the French Revolution is just such a kind of a vast entity a beast if you will this great phenomenon that it's it has so many implications and so many avenues of exploration available to it on a scholarly level both you know historically and critically and also artistically there is there is just a a huge amount to go on so it, it has been something that has always kind of fairly intimidated um, and hence that even though it's been like obviously in the pre- in the background of this podcast in many ways I mean Derrida talks about it in Spectres of Marx we haven't really done anything that's really um, really sort of addressed it firsthand. Uh, it's the so, yeah yes it is arguably it is the single most important event in modern European history it is the it's the point where from that well, in sort of like the um, in the usage of the word uh, of uh, popularized by sort of like Zizek and Abadieu, it's uh, an event. It's a, a thing that happens, which alters the entire course of everything that happens afterwards. Absolutely nothing can ever be the same after the French Revolution, and indeed nothing mm-hmm. was. It is the it is one of the um, it is one of the singularities of history. Almost it uh, is. I believe I believe I put it to Max actually. Um, just earlier today, kind of like, I, I asked like kind of what it, what was the French Revolution? Uh, what happened? Well, I mean, 
as I was, as I said to Lucy, like my original answer of it was lit was uh, <laughs> dropped down. Like, uh, but uh, basically, like the French Revolution was all of the contradictions of the sort of the last holdouts of the feudal uh, monarchistic um, society finally coming to their ultimate resolution. And whereas in countries like England and America, they were synthesized into a more like, you know, into, into a form that was fairly similar to what had come before. In France, Louis XVI was such a bad king that he and so, so resolutely picked the wrong answers to the various crises that came up. It ended up taking a form that was basically the Enlightenment personified. Mm-hmm. Like, and whether or not it succeeded in proving or disproving the ideas of the Enlightenment is sort of what keeps dragging it out like throughout centuries later. It's yeah. being debated. Yeah, and I was um, kind of, I mean, the Enlightenment is something I'm very much going to be talking about um, later on in the episode because it has so many sort of radical implications. But it's like, I guess like kind of one of the things that held me back kind of thinking about this a lot was the fact that it's like, if you're going to talk about the Enlightenment, you have to talk about romanticism and then, and then like, and indeed even to talk about the Enlightenment, you have to kind of set up with like, what is scholasticism? And that is, you know, that, that alone is like an, another vast, um, avenue of exploration. May um, I, but, uh, do I yeah. have permission to mention an anecdote? Um, go yeah, ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Go, yeah. Thank you. So, it. this is one of those um, apocryphal or partially apocryphal stories which does sort of like sum up a lot of things quite so neatly enough that the fact it didn't quite happen sort of doesn't matter in, uh, in fact the uh, the story goes that uh, during one of his visits to the west um, the chinese premier shao enlai was asked by a journalist what his thoughts were on the uh, the repercussions of the french revolution to which he responded it's too soon to tell um that was the quote I was fishing for from Max. <laughs> Which apparently, like, what actually happened was that because of, like, he had his translators there and there was, like, a one-question delay in his answers. He was referred, <laughs> he was responding to a question before about, like, some trade talks. We said, oh, it's too soon to tell, really. Um, but whether, yeah, it does. Whether, but it whether the Beatles would go down in musical history. <laughs> <laughs> but it sums it up so perfectly that it is the, that, like you said, there is this um, event which will ghost-like, uh, to mm-hmm. put it in needlessly ontological terms, everyday in terms. Mm-hmm. It is this event which is almost unfinished and to which we continue culturally and philosophically and politically to return and continue to reckon with uh, mm-hmm. because you know so much of um, modern France's uh, identity as a nation is caught up with the idea that we are a nation born out of revolution rather than and this is same uh, the same with um, the America with uh, uh, the identity of the United States as opposition to the national identity that exists in other European countries like for example ours where it's more this sense of being at the end of this of this unbroken line of cultural continuity which obviously mm-hmm. is something invented after the fact anyway were it, were it not like horrifically off brand to do so I would insert an audio clip at that point in the edit where I did you ever see the footage of Alex Jones pissed as a fucking skunk on um, the day after the election of Donald Trump, just like bellowing like 1776 has come again. It's like, if you want a culture war, you know, if you face a physical fight, it's over. We've elected George Washington 2.0. It's, it's, Are we saying that Trump uh, is in many ways a latter day embodiment of the Bonapartist spirit to which the revolution evolves into? I can assure you that we are not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, 
I mean, like, we're it's gonna... A, actually, yeah. to, to stay on America for a bit, even in the immediate historiography of... Because, obviously, America, the American Revolution was funded in a large part by monarchistic fronts um, as a way to piss off the British, which was part of their, the whole thing back <laughs> but then. But the history of that. Yeah, but... Um, but and partially, that's one of the... Ironically, is one of the causes of the French Revolution itself, as France spent so much money... Uh, supporting the Americans, that it caused a um, a minor economic crash, which is one of the things that like be- that set up the, uh, the like the eventual fall of the monarchy. But as soon as said revolution happened, the Americans refused to pay any of the reparations that were owed to France, arguing that their debts were to the French crown rather than <laughs> to France itself, <laughs> and and spent as much time as possible trying desperately to pull back from the French Revolution, which they deemed rather than the very class-orientated society that America had set up, even though all of their lip service to liberty... An aristocratic the, republic. Yeah, what, what France was trying to do, terrified every, basically every member of the American government, with the exception of Thomas Jefferson, who um, was obsessed with it, and, <laughs> and gave a speech when he was Secretary of State to um, John Adams, uh, completely adverse to what American foreign policy is saying, that he would rather every single person of every single nation was guillotined until there was only Adam and Eve in each nation than see the French Revolution fail, which saw him, like, John Adams really, really, like, that's very... That's the exact opposite of what we're trying to go for here. But, um... That's incredible. But, but even when... But Jefferson himself ended up being soured on the revolution, not by all the deaths of the terror... But because when he went over to to revolutionary France with his uh, his slave, who he had um, he had children with, uh, he was informed that by the laws of revolutionary France, slavery didn't exist, and so his slave wife was free to leave if she wanted to. Hey. Like even if that would end relations between the um, between the nations, she decided not to, not to leave. Maybe, uh. but which is. I'm, but, I mean, that's quite a thing to be put put to you, I guess. But yeah, uh, but, yeah no, it's a uh, the, the the two the two revolutions very much are uneasy in living in un, lived in an uneasy relation to each other. The uh, early response to what well, well, the response to the early stages of the French Revolution in Britain was um, a was a sort of like somewhat supportive of its initial stages because at this point, you know, Britain Britain was not an absolute monarchy by this point. It hasn't really been one for quite for since the civil well since the civil war really. <laughs> Sort of kind, of, it's all complicated. And there was <laughs> That's this, another episode. Very complicated. But there was this feeling uh, that um, what was, you know, with this, uh, what was obviously a despotic monarchy in France being brought to account, that this was the natural liberties that a people uh, are owed finally being seized by the French people. This was then becoming a modern uh, a modern kingdom, like like Britain was a modern kingdom. Uh, but then, you know, ab- well, like you already said, Max, the French Revolution is a sequence of revolutions and it's a sequence of events of gradually increasing intensity where, it, and eventually, uh, you know, because, you know, the first forays don't really aren't really coming at sort of like the uh, the monarchy as such is about limitation of monarchical power and and recognizing the rights of um the uh, the, the various estates and so on but then the, it eventually reaches this point which was almost unthinkable whereby a na- you know a nation could kill its king uh, for treachery the same thing that happens in um in uh happened in england specifically england with um 
during the English Civil War and the execution and of... This was a <laughs> parallel that, that England was very keen not to draw when it happened. Yeah. I thought you were about fine. to say... Yeah. John, I, I almost thought you were about to say Mary Queen of Scots because that itself was, you know, when she was executed by Queen Elizabeth, that was... I imagine, likewise, just a massive shock to international relations and set a, like, basically a dangerous precedent that gave uh, carte blanche for the Spanish Armada to happen. And thankfully, it really didn't. I mean, the, I, the thing about the French Revolution is that it would have probably just been a very, very bourgeois, like, you know, um, revolution of, of, of a uh, level to... Well, I mean, we've got, we've, got, we've got a lot to cover on that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it, like, it would have probably stayed to the original form of the revolution, which was, uh, it wasn't universal suffrage. It was suffrage based on taxation. Um, there was, ba- like, all of the feudal, um, feudal privileges the aristocrats still had were uh, originally were like kept exactly the same mm-hmm. um it was mo- it, it was it was the definition of incremental change but like you know but in a in a totalitarian monarchy so incremental seems like quite a lot mm-hmm. however um as louis the 16th kept making these terrible terrible decisions he basically forced the hand of the what were inherently quite a lot of moderate um the moderate revolutionaries to sort of they sort of had to punish him or go against him. And the more this happened, the more the nations surrounding France thought this set a terrible president and put increasing pressure on France to stop, mm-hmm. stop these Republican drives, which led to further and further Republicanism. And eventually, by 1793, pushed through into something previously unseen, basically in the world at yeah. that point. Which was kind of like... Well, so, and, and, so my history is hazy. Is that something... Is that thing you're talking about, like, a revolution of, like, the lower classes, essentially a proletarian revolution, although that's obviously iffy terminology to be applying in this context. They call them, it was Revolution of the Sans Coulet, which literally means without trousers, yeah. because they didn't wear fancy trousers. Like. And, and that was, um, that was uh, ripe for play with the British satirists of the era, uh, mm. who were just like, you know, fucking, you know, look at these, look at these proles hanging down. Yeah. <laughs> and, but also, you know, like, that, that was an image that, um, on the one hand, was kind of used to demonstrate bestial, like, savagery mm. of, like, these uncontrollable, unenlightened, one might say, people. Mm. Oh, that's for a later bit of the podcast. Um, but also kind of that, that kind of, like, that savagery, you know, carried over, or, you know, that perception of savagery carried over into an interesting inversion in um, artistic reflections of the revolution that were to come you know we had a we we had a kind of rough approximation of it in the philosophies of Jean-Jacques Rousseau who um you know who I think gets mentioned a little bit he's very much the daddy of the French revolution like Rousseau carried around one of uh, Rousseau's books with him at all times Mm. and was constantly flicking through it yeah yeah and his inability to square Rousseau's more utopian ideals with the more mucky business of governing is part of the things that like Started to spiral out of control for him. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, um, yeah also, for a revolution, it's got to be said that the French Revolution was almost, from its inception, was really, really grounded in the past. Like, but most of the people who were involved in it were not... Because it, it originally started as a bloodless revolution by... Um, in, to give a bit of background, in France, at times of extreme social stress... The king could call what was called the three estates, which would be 
So he and the first estate, which were the aristocracy, the second mm-hmm. estate, which were the, uh, the clergy, and the third estate, which were representatives from the then non-existent middle class. Mm-hmm. And so in the economic strife that led to the revolution, the pressure on him grew to call these three estates to basically offer him ideas. Mm-hmm. And so the third estate was by far, it was almost like four times as big as the, the, the other two estates, yet it had like a, a third of the votes. And once he called it, the third estate basically started meeting by itself and like effectively took control of the nation without yeah, any blood being spilled, just by refusing to what's it um, refusing to disband. And what kind of people comprise this third estate? They, the third estate would be made up by people who had sort of they were made it in society. Like people would be uh, okay. people would be voted to have a um, a representative from their area. They were. They had to, you know, they had to own property. They had to uh, have over a certain amount of money. Kind of regional dignitaries. Yeah, indeed. Um, and uh, and so this was that early, yeah, like for want of a better word, bourgeois. What's it, um, version of the the revolution? Uh huh. Because um, that is the epitome yeah. of the bourgeois, the nouveau riche. Indeed, but almost by 1790, the supporters of the revolution were wearing these little red caps, which you may have ah. seen in the, oh, in the pictures. I've, uh, I have some friends... Was it the, uh, the, the Phrygian cap? Yeah. The Phrygian yeah. cap, yes. The, um, I've got some friends on the political left in France who I've seen on Facebook a fair amount with those hats uh, participating in various political activities. Well, the, the, We should get her on the podcast, although I'm not sure how she feels about podcasting. Yeah, the, uh, yeah the, the, the basis of the cap... Oh, oh, sorry, Sean, would you like to take this? Uh, no, I think, no, because uh, I've got a point, but I think we'll follow ne- neatly from what you're saying there. Mm. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, so the the, uh, the Phrygian cap was originally a Roman thing, which was um, it was what like it was the felt cap given to emancipated slaves of ancient Rome, oh. and so them adopting that symbol was a pretty early sign that they viewed the revolution in terms of the Roman Republic, which was very very mm. popular at the time. And yeah, this so, is the uh, yeah. So the point that I wanted to make here is I remember is um, mm. in Hannah Arendt's book uh, on revolution. A point that she makes is but the origin of the term, the word itself, revolution, is from uh, astronomical discourse. Uh, mm. uh, it, literally, a complete revolution, a complete returning, uh, an, a celestial objects return to the start point of its orbit. And the reason she emphasises this is the notion, like you've already said here that they were harking back to the Roman Republic. Uh, a very popular image that they had was the idea that they are re- that the revolution is a return to a prior correct state of affairs um, rather than, uh, and sort of declaring sort of what's come in the last whatever period of time as an illegitimate development in history but we've returned to the beginning now uh so this is and you know and which kind of has some sort of like eerie um repercussions when it comes to sort of what would happen sort of later on the french revolution with the de- literal declaration of year zero um the uh and as well as that it's interesting as well that um the uh court artist who was one of the i remember one of my lecturers at university describing him as one of the great survivors of the french revolution was a jacques louis david yeah exactly and david is was essentially the creep was the creator of what we would call the hitler salute the roman salute it was a gesture which he which he invented in his his painting the o for the harati the the raised up right arm which does not did not exist in roman times despite it being called that it was 
it was a, it was a product of his own imagination. But this becomes a salute associated with uh, the revolution. We see it in the his famous drawing of the tennis court oath, where you have the of uh, the third estate gathering. Well, just some detail, yeah. That that's the the, the the tennis court oath is where the third estate um, ah. first declared themselves basically sovereign from the the estates themselves. Right, right. So the art of a notion of the Roman salute is is this kind of like this gesture of defiance and ancient liberty asserting itself. That's what it means uh, at the time, and it beca- and yeah. So, mm-hmm. so I cut you off there. I apologise, but um, uh, to, to tie into what you were saying, uh, a lot of the Romanistic traditions that the Republic of uh, the the First Republic attempted to put in were blurred in an interesting kind of in an interesting non-historical way. So they um, went, by about year, their year zero, they went really into either renaming themselves uh, Roman names, like Brutus. Brutus was the most popular one. And statues of Brutus were being built all over, all over Paris. But he was a blurred Brutus. So simultaneously, the Brutus that uh, overthrew the original Tarquin, uh, what's it called, a dynasty in Rome to make it a republic, and also the Brutus who killed Caesar. Like, ah. they, rather than, like, they, they allowed direct historical truth to be blurred by, like, them being symbolic. So, like, it was, it's almost like Rome, but better than Rome. Like, but I think yeah. what Rome really meant to say was the approach yeah. of uh, the French Revolution. Okay, uh, can I just call a point just briefly here? Because I think I've got a good segue that I want to use to move into actually talking about the film in a sec, which is basically, um, I mean, sh- shall I just kind of like launch into that? Because I can, I can kind of come in at any point with it. Um, By all means. Okay. Do, do you have anything more you want to just get out of the way in this, or, you know, to cover uh, this bit? Or shall I mention what the date is in the French Republican calendar? Yeah, maybe we oh, can yes. get a chronology going. I don't know the literal date because the front, uh, once uh, things really started moving, France decided they need to make, invent an entirely new calendar with uh-huh. ten day weeks and uh, names belt based on a uh, um, sort of deep folk traditions because you know that's what you need when you, you're trying to protect your, your republic from all sides. It's presently the year two hundred and twenty eight. It is the fourteenth day of. I'm trying to figure out how the hell you read this calendar, actually. It's very confusing. It's the 14th day. It's the fourth day of the 23rd decade of the year. It is the 14th day of the month of Florial, which means flower. Uh, <laughs> Thanks, John. I, th- I think. It's, God, this is confusing. What's actually, what's the name of today? What's today's name? That's the thing I want to find out, actually. Saturday. <laughs> it's, so Florial, the 14th day of Florial is Fan Palm Tree. <laughs> so to give some sense of why this calendar is ridiculous it's because it was written by a failed playwright called Faber de Egalitaine who was uh, just mates with a bunch of the main lawyers who uh, were behind the French Revolution and so as what was it, like the favours for favours system that would became, was very similar to Stalinist, um, Stalinist Russia was that if you were sort of friendly with the upper management, you'd get given these insanely important tasks that you had no business doing, which is why the French Republican calendar has 10-day weeks rather than... Uh-huh. Which, which every French peasant hated because it meant you got less weekends. Like, because <laughs> they just think that through. <laughs> it's like... Um, I always, like... I always have this kind of, like, mental image of if, if there is ever some sort of, like, great revolutionary thing which somehow is instigated and... 
uh, leads to a coup by me and my mates. Or like we've all had that fantasy. People I know. <laughs> like I imagine I would be just the kind of like, well, who's good at naming shit? <laughs> oh, maybe maybe we can give that job to the dumb art hoe in the corner. Just like, um, yeah, that that can be Lucy's contribution to the revolution. She can come up with like you know like the color scheme. Because <laughs> like she she writes, so maybe she can come up with paints. Um, said uh, in fact, said guy who came up with the calendar, who again was a nothing, who was nothing to do with anything, was involved in an incredibly complicated fraud case involving <laughs> the British East India Company, uh, which was basically funneling money towards himself, um, which had an in- like insanely important knock-on effect in that um, Maximilian Robespierre, who I'm sure will come up mm. in conversation yeah. later, heard about this. And he was, and during, due to the stress of war, he assumed that any attempt to fraud was clearly someone who had been paid for by the British government, and therefore Faber and indeed most of his, um, his, in, all, of the, all of his friends who were leading luminaries of the French revolutions were clearly traitors themselves and needed to be killed. Like, uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I guess like the general gist of what seems to be emerging here. Uh, between all the, the various ideas we've been discussing is the uh, it's the sense that, like, as we were saying at the beginning, the revolution is a vast thing, but it's also a difficult thing to approach because it exists on so many levels. Mm. And you have to approach it with so many different mindsets and from, and, like, have a really kind of, like, strange perspective spanning multiple points of history and thought. Um, and And sometimes, you know... This, this creates in the desire of a critic hoping to uh, work together a quick summary of events to to just see the entire kind of like intellectual movement or the, the spirit of what happened condensed into a, say, you know, like maybe a period of like an hour and 45 minutes taking place entirely within one room upholding that whole all the world's a globe kind of I mean it's funny you say that because I mean the whole revolution basically takes five years by 1974 when Thermidor happened it's this is all happening in an incredibly condensed period of time like um, we talk about like the last five years as being like particularly turbulent ones it's like shit all has really happened mm. in comparison to that Mm. which you know we it seems like two days ago that we had, you know, the whole, like, I'm with her pink pussy hats match, you know, and, like, that that's not going to go down with the same level of historical gravitas as, say, you know, the, 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 the Phrygian bonnet. <laughs> uh, you know, that kind of shit. But, I mean, I guess that's why tonight we're going to be talking about Max, full title of the play. The persecution and assassination of John Paul Marat, as performed by the inmates of the Charenton Asylum, under the direction of the Marquis de Sade. Thank you, Matt. By Peter Weiss. Translation by Jeffrey Skelton, directed by Peter Brooks. Oh, I feel like we're in an audible all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that would have more kind of like audible gulping sounds. <laughs> sort of like, sort of people Constant like white- chewing noises in the background. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is the LibreVox kind of horrid <laughs> AI generated <laughs> version as director of the clinic of Charenton I should like to welcome you to this salon but to one of our residents a vote of thanks is due Monsieur de Sade who wrote and has produced this play for your delectation and for our patient's rehabilitation 
we ask your kindly indulgence for a cast never on stage before coming to Charenton, but each inmate, I can assure you, will try to pull his weight. So, I mean, most, most plays or books or indeed films about the French Revolution are historically not actually about the French Revolution. So the famous movie Danton starring... Yeah. His name escapes me. This is this this is unfortunate. I wish I had written down in my notes. Um, Tarantino. Yeah, uh, but the, the, the movie the, the the movie Danton is actually about the, the the Polish Communist Party. Like generally, the French Revolution is used as a mask for whatever you want to talk about ah. in the modern era. Like, and to some degree, Marat Saad is isn't that different because mm. it's still talking about. Themes of like it's themes of liberty versus like it's not really about the French Revolution. It's about the more universal themes of it. Like uh, I think that's fair to say. I mean, I mean that's that's probably the angle. That's certainly the angle I've taken, Sean. I believe you've probably done likewise. Uh, but yeah, so yeah. like, but like, what what happens? And then we can pick apart like the exact history of like, did it happen? Because mm. what we're talking about here is a historic, supposedly historic event. Um, in the life of the Marquis de Sade. Do, okay, I need to do some. Okay, I need to do something about this audio because I am really, really getting unhinged hearing do my own voice. Do, do, back do, do in you my want ear. me to be the one hearing my own yeah, voice? Yeah. Do you want to unmute for a bit while I while yeah. I do the bit? Yeah. Um. So I'm gonna mute my microphone and see what happens. You You mean unmute it? Unmute. Yeah. And Sean, you mute. No, and Max, you mute. <laughs> No, Sean, don't mute. Okay, (laughs) so basically the... uh, It's it's, it's horrible, isn't it? It's really unpleasant. (laughs) I'm amazed you've been doing as well as you have. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so like, basically, um, well, I mean... I'm just going to straight up say, like, the, one of the main, like, accounts I read for this, I know we've got we've got a lot to talk about vis-a-vis the Marquis de Sade, kind of, like, over the course of the episode, because he's very much a kind of central figure in this, but... Um, it's fairly safe to say that, like, a lot of, um, like, the maybe like the revolution itself, a lot of what we know about the Marquis de Sade is a product of myth-making, most notably by the Marquis de Sade himself. Um, uh, however, this is a kind of, like, this is almost what one might call a hyperstition, because it's, like, the, his own personal myth-making did, um, in at least one recorded example, go on to influence the real, like, documented events of the history of the French Revolution itself. Because, okay, so, like, I I don't, I can't even remember where in the timeline this comes, but, like, a brief, like, he spent a lot of time in prison, that's safe to say. I believe it was because, like, whatever romantic associations we have with the Marquis de Sardes side, he did, like, imprison a bunch of, like, minors in his house and do terrible things. He was a bad man. Like, he was terrible en- man. En- enabled, I believe. Yeah, enabled, yeah. His <laughs> wife was just there going like, oh, well, okay. Um, <laughs> Same shit, different day. <laughs> yeah. Um, but one of the things that comes up uh, that is actually, I, I believe we're going to be coming back to this text um, about um, the life of the Marquis de Sade. One of the things he did was... Um, s- okay, so in, in the Bataille biography... He draws attention to the, uh, the the fact of Saad and the storming of the Bastille. The storming of the Bastille being one of the at least most symbolically significant events of the revolution, and it's certainly one of the ones flagged up because it you know it, it reflects the kind of like uh, undoing the injustices of the past, addressing the injustices of the past, 
uh, in such a way that we managed to kind of eclipse the injustices. That it's it's interesting because the actual storming of the Bastille was originally done by the people because they there would be gunpowder there, and it was just a purely it just made sense like on a logistical basis. But however, the sort of the unexpected ideological fervor of it really pushed the revolution to areas that the people even storming the Bastille weren't even intending for it to do itself. Like it really took uh, the event took a life on of its own. Yeah, um, mm. I, I've actually I think I found the quote here that I'm going to read from. Mm. Um, this is from Literature and Evil by uh, Badai, uh, and this is the line. Uh, it has been said that the storming of the Bastille was, did not really have any of the importance which has been attributed to it. This is possible. On the 14th of July, 1789, there were no prisoners of any note. The event may have been based on a misunderstanding, a misunderstanding which, according to Saad, he himself had created. <laughs> but we could say that this equivocal element gives the whole episode that blind, almost unknown quality, without which it would have been no more than a response to the dictates of necessity, as in a factory. Caprice or chance not only partially not only partially deny the interest aroused by the 14th of July, they also give it an adventitious interest. And that event was basically, I believe um, this may be a detail that Bataille, this sounds like a detail that either Bataille or Saad himself invented, but he used the kind of funnel thing that he was shitting into (laughs) as a loudspeaker, as a rudimentary loudspeaker to yell out of the windows at the crowds assembled outside that they were beginning to massacre the prisoners. And that was supposedly what prompted the crowds to initiate the storming of the Bastille. So this this gives us some idea of the man we're dealing with here. That like he was at the centre of these great events happening. He was a remarkable figure, but he may not have actually done these things or I um, mean I think he yeah. he, he I feel he did shit through the funnel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but and 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 basically the um the events of the film, the uh, Marat Saad, as it's frequently shortened to. Mm. Um, I forgot to mention that this isn't an episode, but an episode. Uh, <laughs> I can maybe drop that later. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, the Marat Saad is also based on one of these like potentially real, but probably wholly fabricated, par- partially to wholly fabricated mm. instances in the checkered past and life of... Uh, one, uh, the Marquis de Sade, brackets, who was also a, um, I'm not reading from notes, I just say brackets sometimes, and sometimes I don't say close brackets, uh, who was also, for the most of the time, he was famous, actually, a, a, either a duke or a count, but he didn't say that because Marquis de sounded better, but basically, he spent, so he was arrested for doing some awful shit, possibly something other than the imprisoning children bit, but, uh, so he was arrested, and then, during his internment at various prisons, one of which was the Bastille, he went completely... He was thought to be batshit and then was, like, wheeled... I'm using insensitive language, but uh, <laughs> wheeled to... Was taken to the um, the Charenton, which was a... Um, I don't know how recently it was founded at this point in time, but it was a... Uh, it, was an it was a place of healing. It was an asylum for the treatment of the mentally ill. And there he supposedly put on a series of performances that he um, wrote the scripts for himself and then used the inmates to, um, to, to perform. You gotta make your own fun. Yeah, basically. <laughs> and the way these things are depicted, because obviously, oh, he's the great author who wrote Justine uh, and, he's the, you know, and wrote you know, Philosophy of the Bedroom and the 120 Days of Sodom. He's the, he's the radical edgelord genius. Yeah. And Great so obviously, a... yeah, <laughs> obviously these um, performances would have been like fucking top notch and had people like Glenda Jackson in, um, <laughs> but um, but you know, it, 
whether or not it is true that um, he put on these things, they were probably not as good as we would imagine. <laughs> Certainly not as good as Peter Weiss imagined. Yeah. Uh, uh, oh. I hear a distant bell. <laughs> I could hear it as well. What was that? It was a bicycle bell somewhere oh. outside on the towpath. Cool. Okay, so... Marat Saad. Basically, I often find that, um, yeah, so, okay, so basically... Background of the play, background of background the play. Background of the play, so, wait, no, do we, are we ready for the back? What happens in the play, Max? <laughs> okay. Uh, so, yeah, so this is an ahistorical thing, it's not really a thing that happened, but it's based on a thing that might have happened in the ahistorical life of the, uh, the Divine Count, the Marquis de Sade. So, in Peter Weiss's take of what may or may not have happened in reality, uh -huh. um, what, like, the Marquis de Sade, in about 1809, under the Napoleonic Empire, puts on a piece about the, um, about the assassination of, of Jean-Paul Marat. Now, Jean-Paul Marat, um, is, because it's very easy, like, more more even than any other, like the Russian Revolution, the French Revolution was made up of individual characters who were not a monolith at all, and they each he often held as much power as people sort of thought they did. And the minute they thought they stopped holding those powers, they would stop holding those powers. Jean-Paul Marat was unlike most of the other major players in the Revolution, in that he, most, like, the, the, the key members were all in their early 30s. They were all lawyers. They were no, all ripped. Yeah, ba basically, yeah. <laughs> like, uh, but Jean-Paul Marat was... <laughs> Jean-Paul Marat was not physically fit. Jean-Paul Marat was about double their age. He was going on 50. And he had a horrible, still to this day, unknown skin condition. That, like, it was, it was sort of like his flesh was rotting off him. What was it, Max, that Marat was doing before the revolution? Remind us all. He did, he did quite a lot. He originally started off as a, as a physician and he went, to, um, he went to England to learn his trade and is an alumni of the University of St. Andrews, believe it or not. And as I discovered today, had an affair with one of the two female founders of the Royal Academy, for which I feel profoundly sorry for said woman. But, um, but what's it called? Um... After being in England for, sorry, do you mind if do, do no, mind if, you, if you if I mute, mute if we, me. We, we, if, oh, I I mute myself. Yeah. Okay, and then yeah. yeah okay. Um. Okay. Now Max needs to unmute himself. Yes, yes. I'm going for it. <laughs> there we are. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. Yeah. So yeah. So John Paul Marat spends his youth in um in England, uh, learning what uh, learning medicine like basically basically off his own back uh, frequenting coffee houses doing all the proto-revolutionary stuff that most people are famous for and then um so wait 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 so you're gonna order like a flat white and then be like so a guy will come over and be like hey do you want to know how the pancreas works <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's all under the counter surgery you know um but then he um he gets an offer to be uh his personal physician to i believe the dauphins of france's bodyguard and he jumps at that opportunity and goes over to France and starts taking money off the royal dime. But Sweet. while he's doing this, he feels that he wants to get more into being a scientist. Um, and no one can hold against Marat that he didn't do a lot of science. It just wasn't 
good science that he did. So, <laughs> so Marat spent 166 experiments attempting to prove that fire was actually a fluid, an igneous fluid, in, in his own words. Um, like, um, and the French, the, he asked the French Academy of Sciences to give him, sort of basically to back him up. And they said, basically said, you've done a lot of experiments and we've got to acknowledge that. So Marat published it and said, as backed up by the Academy of Sciences. And the Academy of Sciences said, no, because what you're trying to prove is wrong and ridiculous, which began a decades-long grudge match between him and the scientific institution, which this would go on as he attempted to disprove some of Newton's theories. He attempted to argue that refraction didn't exist and light bent around objects. Like, he... <laughs> like, made, like... In the, in the words of, uh, what's it called, uh, of Ghostbusters, he was a poor scientist. But, um, <laughs> but around, <laughs> around the era, but around, after, 70, after the tennis court oath took place, he felt that he had to get involved in the, in, the, in the political scene of the time. And he started his own newspaper called the Ami de Pup, the People's Friend. Uh-huh. And this was... Uh, what for the time an extreme left wing tract like it was arguing for what's it called uh, it, it, it was arguing for attacking the powerful it was arguing for like you know universal suffrage it was arguing for a bunch of stuff that like the 1989 revolution had no interest in granting to the point when the universe like the police often would try to hunt him down to which he then moved his printing presses into the sewers, like the goddamn fucking Phantom of the Opera, and published his like political tracts from the sewers while this mysterious skin condition he had was getting worse and worse and worse. Like he was he was the kind of man that if you wrote right into your like uh, into your um into your like period piece, you just say it was ridiculous and had no basis in reality. But no, he he very much existed. He is described as looking like a rodent. I believe uh, a contemporary report of him described him as short in stature, deformed in person, and hideous in face. Um, <laughs> um, That's his Tinder even, profile. I'm sorry. Even pro his historians who are pro him, of which I count myself, even though I'm not a historian, generally argue that a lot of the things that he was agitating for were basically based on revenge rather than fellow feeling for the working class. Like, he wanted people to suffer like he had suffered. In, um, in, in, uh, in, the, in the film adaptation that we're going to be primarily discussing, he is played by Ian Richardson. Who does not resemble a rodent, so is therefore bad casting. <laughs> <laughs> they should have got... They they should have got fucking Pete Buttigieg, am I right? <laughs> I, I, I I can see like Toby Jones doing a pretty yeah. good Marat. Pete Buttigieg wasn't born. Oh, I watched that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, let's tweet him. <laughs> um, so as wait, uh, what's okay? It? Wait, no, wait. But as an aside, so like Toby Jones, you just mentioned, right? Mm-hmm. So you get you know who was Kokoroku or whatever it is, one of the weird kind of chorus of fools that happens in this play, right? That was played by Freddie Jones, who is Toby Jones's dad. Yeah, and of course played Tufa Howard in David Lynch's Dune. That he did. <laughs> um, to finish off the Marat, we, sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just want to mention this as a, as, as the side. When we, a couple of weeks ago, when we had like our little planning Skype call talking about this, it just descended into us looking up what the cast of Dune went on to do. <laughs> <laughs> um, Not a great deal by any of them. <laughs> you know, I think that was sank every single career of everyone involved. So to give a typical, the kind of thing that Marat would put in the, the, the people's friend. Um, so 
uh, around 1792, Marat was saying that if only they cut off five or six hundred heads, then that could have assured the people's supposed freedom and happiness. Um, <laughs> and was constantly, he was basically arguing that, you know, that treason laws need to be much higher and people should be killed for going against what he deemed France. And right. was frequently feeling the revolution was being stolen out from underneath of it, underneath it by profiteers, by people from the previous regime, and by people who wanted to make it make the, the new French Republic more of the same. Uh-huh. Um, now it's happening, and you can't stop it happening. The people used to suffer everything. Now they take their revenge. You are watching that revenge, and you don't remember that you drove the people to it. Now you protest, but it's too late to start crying over spilt blood. What is the blood of the aristocrats compared with the blood the people shed for you? Many of them had their throats slit by your gangs. Many of them died more slowly in your workshops. So what is this sacrifice compared with the sacrifice the people made to keep you fat? What are a few looted mansions compared with their looted lives? You don't care. If the foreign armies with whom you've been making secret deals march in and massacre the people, you hope the people will be wiped out so you can flourish. And when they are wiped out, not a muscle will twitch in your puffy bourgeois faces, which are now all twisted up with anger and disgust. So this sort of built up to, he became he became one of two, the second of whom we'll talk about later, the main ad, what's advocates for the working class Paris, the sans rather than some of the, uh, the more high-ranking Jacobins, um, the Jacobins named after the Jacobin clubs, which was, it wasn't a political party, it was just um, of like, orig- in France there was a great deal of basically gentlemen's clubs where people could go to discuss politics, mm-hmm. and the Jacobins were um, the slightly the, were the more extreme version, uh-huh. like um, not as extreme as what Marat was not arguing nearly as extreme for. as the contemporary magazine Jacobin. Indeed, indeed, <laughs> which is really yeah. radical, intense, like Maoist shit. <laughs> but um, but uh, in fact, um, this is bringing up a figure who's going to come up later in the podcast. But often Napoleon Bonaparte uh, was deemed as using the French Revolution for basically you know for his own personal gain for never believing in the ideas of republicanism. But he joined the Jacobin Club at a time when the Jacobin Club was seen as dangerous lunatics. <laughs> and the, if you wanted to get ahead in the revolution, you'd have, been, you'd have joined one of the more like, like you know, friends of the aristocracy group. So by joining that, he was really singling himself out from personal advancement, which argues that at the beginning of his career, like to at least a certain extent, Napoleon really did believe in what the French Revolution stood for, as he was basically setting himself back substantially um just always like a little, little yeah. crap in a pony there but anyway so to get back to marat after building this name for himself he became infamously associated with the um what's it called it the, the, the september massacres which is when austria basically said they were going to invade the nascent republic and reinstall um uh, Louis XVI's absolute monarch. Mm. And that is mentioned in the event, in the, in the play, that gets a mention about, like, the Austrians mm. surrounding somewhere. Mm. This, this, I mean, because I mean, Paris, cause Paris is right on the border and the Austrians had invaded, this led to a, a state of complete panic within Paris yeah. about that they were going to be overthrown. And in this panic, um, the people rose up and basically murdered everyone in the prisons because they th- thought that a lot of them were, as monarchists, would, like, over a thousand, between a thousand and a thousand six hundred people died in this, in this, what was called the, um, what's it called, the September Journey. Oh. Um, and 
Marat got a lot of the blame for it because of the kind of inflammatory rhetoric he wrote. Contemporary historians aren't really sure how much he actually affected it. In fact, the speech by Danton, who's usually seen as the, the more calm member of the Jacobins, where he said that front, the French have to dare anything, was seen as more inflammatory. But in the eyes of the French, um, particularly one Charlotte Corday of Cannes, um, Marat was everything that was bad in the revolution. She was a member of the Girondinist movement mm-hmm. who were a um who believed in federalism and being wrong about everything to let my own personal <laughs> bias uh, take this that was their real focus uh as she came to um what's it called um to france to kill marat thinking that if he died things would calm down and everything would sort of relax thank god she was right yeah exactly and, and yeah <laughs> <laughs> and as like lucy sarcastically insinuates by her killing him she then kicked off the terror. <laughs> um, like, before that, the Revolutionary Tribunal, which is not the kind of thing you want to be called before, you could actually win. Like, the, <laughs> the, the, the Girondinists, in fact, indicted Marat and had him called again in front of the Revolutionary Tribunal, to which he argued his own case and was released and was carried out on the shoulders of his supporters. Oh. So, what's it called? So, this is before the, the, the period of time... Uh, by two years, one year away from then, a law would be put in that basically no one had to, uh, the right to a defence and that the, uh, the, 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 what's it called, um, the jury should decide based on what they thought the guy's virtue was. And at that point, things, um, things swiftly degenerated. Literally, uh, the one thing we did not want to happen. To happen. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah. So, that, so that is Murat's background. He was deemed a secular saint after the cult of reason overthrew, like... Basic, to explain the cult of reason briefly. I mean, um, I do. I mean, maybe we should go into the cult of reason because I'm going to be talking about the Enlightenment mm. um, and kind of the wider principles of that. Although it would be good to get a bit of background on the cult of reason. So, like, but I mean, I feel I should do my, my spiel about like kind of the Enlightenment at this time oh, and yeah, how that how that as a night has as a notion was faring. Um, but I mean, I feel we should round up the the events of the play first. Mm. So. I mean, so there's some really cracking songs. And, uh, songs which are actually unrelated, don't move the storylines. We need to I think we have to stop you both. Four years after the revolution and the old king's execution. Four years after, remember how those courtiers took their final bow. Fighting man keeps on with his writing. Four years after the Bastille fell, he still recalls the old battle. Okay, so just trying to put a little semblance of order back into this growing nightmare of a podcast. Guys, let's finish talking a little bit about what actually happens in the film of the play Marat Saad. Okay, what does happen, Max? So, in Marat Saad, uh, the the entire film is basically a play within a play. Said play being the Marquis de Saad's version of the death 
of Marat, the <laughs> murder and assassination of Jean-Paul Marat as performed by the inmates of the Chantal Asylum, etc., etc. Yeah, yeah indeed. Um, so, the, in the form that Peter Wise takes it, it's basically an argument between the Dessard's point of view of pure personal individual liberty at the sort of expense of society as the most mm-hmm. important thing versus Marat's argument of the importance of like revolutionary society in such a way that is very recognisable yeah. with uh, modern left-wing cultures such as yeah, the Soviet Union. So it's yeah. collectivism uh, versus what if the child consents, really? Yes. Yeah, and, uh, and, and <laughs> like it's also kind of like some of the narrative of the play as, you know, because this is like all written by, supposedly by the Marquis de Sade and the reality of the, the performance we're witnessing. Uh, part of it is like kind of documenting his own kind of metamorphosis of opinion because there is that wonderful line where he just he talks about his initial impressions of the French Revolution as being a magnificent uh, opportunity for revenge and he lays kind of quite a lot of uh, stress on this on this kind of like you know you know the ancient kind of like right of revenge and and, and this thing but like then that's that's something he's now moving away from and that kind of that initial kind of wrong opinion that he now deems it is kind of dictating a lot of his thoughts from that point onwards. Well, there's a famous, well, there's, a, there's a brilliant speech in it where he describes the, uh, the, what's called, the, the public execution of Damiens, who attempts to murder a French king, uh-huh. in which he, you know, he has his body slit open, he has molten silver pulled into his wounds, horses pull him apart, and, you know, he, he describes this in a, in a fairly breathless, like, lip-clipping kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he describes, like, while Casanova, uh, what's going to reach some of the skirts of the ladies watching, you know. <laughs> uh, but he then contrasts that to the fact that with the guillotine, there's no... Per- all of the deaths meted out by the revolution are impersonal, and they're, they're sort of de- dealt out on a mathematical basis. And he views the greater cruelties of like the random monarchic overreach as more important like as, as sort of more human than what the revolution's attempt to accomplish to achieve the equality that it's technically setting out to do which is a um, an argument that we'll see over and over again in in the overreach of attempting to impose you know more left-wing views like how can you do that in a humanistic way rather than leveling everyone together yeah yeah. There's something. Um, there's actually something that Bataille mentions in his um, essay on uh, Dessard in uh, Literature and Evil that a lot of like Dessard often in his in his um, the real Dessard, not the fictionalized version that appears in this film in his writings, often has a special horror of the notion of punishment, and hmm. and and especially sort of like the figure of the judge who coldly and proportionately sort of dishes out the 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 adequate amount of suffering that someone has to go through in order to pay the penalty that they owe because of what they've done and this is this is what horrifies Dessard more than murder more than um well more than rape really more than all of these terrible things that people do to each other because these because those things at least for him they come from somewhere genuine in the way they are born out of desires which nature bestows upon us uh and his view really was none has the right not even god or nature to punish or judge because of the way that people are disposed are deposed disposed mm-hmm. um, how the desires yeah. that they have i mean um and if i may make an interjection i know we're going to be talking probably in more detail about uh like the particular writings of desard later but it's important to note that in a lot of, um, certainly in a lot of source material I came across kind of when, when doing a bit of background reading for this episode, 
Uh, and also, you know, I think just like in passing in, um, in, in Bataille's biography, the, the key work that is identified when um, people are really trying to pin down um, Desartes' actual ideology, um, the one they seem to like zero in on most as the most significant isn't the more, isn't like the 120 days of Sodom or philosophy of the bedroom, which are kind of the more kind of notorious ones. The ones they pick up on are two works of fictions he did, one called uh, Justine and one called Juliet. And uh, Ju Justine and Juliet, uh, I haven't read them, but uh, from what I understand, they are kind of, they are two kind of sequential novels or like, I think they were sisters. Or yeah, they're twins. Yeah. yeah. Um, do, you, do you want me to perhaps say this? Because I do, I've not read them, but I have read a fair bit about yeah. them. Yeah, I've, so, I've got a quote from, uh, that actually comes from the Dialectic Enlightenment. But maybe I could like read that after, like, uh, yeah, like maybe as a kind of articulation of what I think you're about to say. Yeah, so just so they're twin novels uh, about twin sisters separated at birth called Justine and Juliet, and basically what happens, Justine's subtitle is The Misfortunes of Virtue and Juliet's is All the Reward of Vice, and basically mm -hmm. without going into details about them, because uh, I haven't read them, but um, there's mm -hmm. a fantastic book about Dessard called The Sadian Woman by Angela Carter, which is an absolute, absolute tour de force of um, feminist scholarship. Been, it's on the list, I've been meaning to. It's a fantastic book, and she goes in, and she does and she sort of does exposition of these two novels and what happened and justine basically is a is a young woman who tries to lead a good moral virtuous life and is just shat upon by the universe constantly like every single like uh she is absolutely obsessed with her with like maintaining her virginity with these notions of um these catholic notions of like moral purity and especially like obedience and stuff and she is just horribly punished throughout the whole novel but there's like moments where for example she gets locked up many times by various evil aristocrats and one of them like she's locked up in the cells with these other prisoners who are plotting to escape and she tells on them because even if he has like got them all prisoner he is still the lord of this manor mm. uh while juliet is the evil twin sister who um just goes in the complete opposite direction and is just a cruel, murderous, sadistic, very, very sort of sexually empowered woman who just does every single horrific thing that, you know, of the same kind of horrific things that are done to Justine. Julia revels in doing them, in doing these deplorable actions. And mm -hmm. they're kind of juxtaposed as these sort of two possible ways you can go through life and uh, and, and actually uh, Carter makes a very interesting point that Ju as she puts it Juliet is what freedom looks like in an unfree world where the only freedom open to you is the freedom to become one of the oppressors so there you go that's in a yeah. nutshell um and then this may even be like entirely unnecessary this but I've got a, I've got a quote that I flagged up in uh, Adorno and Horkheimer's uh, Dialectic of Enlightenment, which is uh, Justine, the virtuous sister, is a martyr of, to the is a martyr to the moral law. Juliet, however, draws the conclusion that the bourgeoisie is sought to avoid. She demonizes Catholicism as the latest mythology, and with it, civilization as a whole. The energies previously focused on the sacrament are now devoted perversely to sacrilege. Uh, this this inversion is extended to the community in general. In all this, Juliet does not does not proceed fanatically as Catholicism had done with the Incas, but merely attends to the business of sacrilege as in the efficient, enlightened way of the Catholics too, still heading their blood in, from the archaic times. Uh, there's a bit of an ellipsis. In psychological terms, Juliet, not unlike uh, Matuil in Les, Les, 
dangerous liaisons, uh, 16, uh, page 16, <laughs> embodies uh, neither unsublimated nor regressive libido, but intellectual pleasure in regression, a more intellectualis diaboli, the joy of defeating civilization with its own weapons. She loves systems and logic. She wields the instrument instruments of rational thought with the uh, consum consummate skill as far as self-mastery is concerned her instructions some tricks stand in the same relation some some things stand in relation to Kant's as the special applications as does the principle it's interesting as well that something about Bataille cautions is us associating any of the particular views that characters in Dessard's works um, express as actually being Dessard's own opinion because oh, yeah. and it's almost yeah. more like um in this, like, there's some re there is there's uh, some theories about uh, Plato, which suggests that every different Socrates in the dialogues is a different character that he's created to explore a particular point of view. You could say the same of Dessard. And in fact, Bataille points out a, a letter that Dessard wrote um, in 1791, which expresses a surprisingly sort of like conservative conservative politics, in which he says. You ask me what my real feelings are so that you can follow them. Nothing was as tactful as that, as that part of your letter, but it will be the greatest difficulty that I shall reply to your question. For, so I read that line. I, I'll just start again. I'll, I won't uh -huh. read that um, bit at the beginning. You ask me what my real feelings are so that you can follow them. Nothing was as tactful as that part of your letter, but it will be with the greatest difficulty that I shall reply to your question. First, as a man of letters, the obligation I am under to work each day, either for one party or for the other, establishes a mobility in my opinions which is reflected in my innermost thoughts. Do I really want to fathom them? They favour no party and are a mixture of them all. I am anti-Jacobin. I hate them heartily. I adore the king but abhor the old abuses. I love a mass of articles in the constitution but others repel me. I want the lustre to be returned to the nobility because I can see no point in taking it away. I want the king to be head of state. I do not want, I do not want a national assembly but two chambers as in England which gives the king a mitigated authority balanced by half the nation necessarily divided into two orders. The third is useless. I shall have none of it. That is what I think. What am I? An aristocrat or a democrat? You tell me if you please, for I am unable to judge. Yeah. I too am a fan of massive articles of yeah. the Constitution. <laughs> I mean, I just, just hearing that, I was like, oh my God. Dessard was the Elon Musk esque disruptor of the, like, of the 19th century. <laughs> there are many interesting kind of Sorry, just as a contextual yeah. point, a contextual point, this, that today is the day that Elon Musk tweeted, in my opinion, Tesla stocks are too high and wiped a couple of billion off of his company's stock value because he's <laughs> wiped idiot. a couple of billionaires off the Forbes 420 list. As Dessard okay. tweeted back then, you know, in my opinion, many of the aristocrats are too tall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, so maybe we should like. What is the deal? <laughs> what is the what is the thrilling conclusion to this dramatis of personae uh, that happens in the play and film, the assassination what? and persecution of Marquis de Sade by? That's <laughs> <laughs> end, Max. So we well, move on. With basically, our lives. The, I want to point the, out that actually, at no point have you got the full name right yet. <laughs> well, I think you just did. Yeah. Um, what's it going like? Yeah, the assassination and persecution of Jean Paul Marat by the coward, the Marquis de Sade. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's. Um, I mean, one thing that we haven't really talked about is that in this play within a play, done within in, in done within um, an asylum, 
is all being done for the edification of Napoleonic era dignitaries who were basically the forces of counter-revolution. Like in, 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 in the in the view of the play, the Napoleonic era uh, the Napoleonic era is just the the re yeah, is um uh France's monarchy to Electric Boogaloo, you know, like uh, and so they're they are like frequently throughout the play they're being interrupted by the by the sort of the manager of the asylum who's trying make trying to make them cut any individual parts of the play, of the play that sort of go against the sort of bourgeois order that like the 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 um, Marat was against in the first place. Uh-huh. Um, and over the course of said play, the inmates get more and more riled up, and the talk of freedom becomes more and more freedom for them personally from the asylum itself. And as things get more and more heightened between the arguments between Dassard and Marat himself, which take place intercut through the, the basic history of Marat's sort of walk to Calvary, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's they call it? Um, uh, but right towards the end, um, after a song which details everything that happens is in that the one? There is no Gorsley. revolution without general, general copulation. No, I think that's that is that song. There is no revolution. Uh, what, what's the point of revolution without general copulation? Is uh-huh. is Dassard's argument for like his preferred <laughs> form of the French Revolution, right, right, uh, which probably you know would have been a limited political it's success. Um, but right at the end of it, he's a, the the um, the the, math, the 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 actors in said play eventually get so heightened that they attack um, they attack their audience, and it ends in a chaotic, anarchic sort of mass rape. Like, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, nice with the um, with the Marquis de Sade grinning, overlooking all of it, to which we have an abrupt cut to black, um, and you know, and decisions have to be taken by the audience. Is it what exactly to take from that? Yeah. But I mean, there's a thing that doesn't get talked about a lot. Talking about this movie is that in the arguments between the Marquis de Sade and Marat that take place over the course of it, which is like a very well done and very much you can whatever side you're on, you can very easily mm-hmm. find arguments, but. In the world of the play, both these arguments are written by the Marquis de Sade. So, like, if we take strawmanning that show, yeah, exactly. It, it's it's a full strawman <laughs> argument. Like, what what even the things that he allows Murat to win are chosen to win on his own mm-hmm. point. You know, yeah. Like, yeah, of course, uh, yeah. like taking it a step further from that, neither of them are written by the Marquis de Sade because they're written by Peter Weiss. What Indeed. we're actually see- mm. what we're actually seeing here is uh, Weiss presenting the two these two opposing visions of liberty and, and sean i want you to pick that point up when i when i come to talk about peter weiss because like you know we need to know we need to know who this peter weiss was first but, but we need to finish the play first but what about the reverse vampires and the rand corporation <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's all all of the globe um, say yeah um interesting on the subject um, on the subject of piece of ice um because it, it's the argument is always with Mar- uh, Marat Saad is which side is Peter Rice uh, Peter Weiss standing for one of a better which word. Which way is the revolutionary yeah. path? And um, but there's a character in it who is a priest named Jack Rue who is uh, in a straitjacket. Profoundly satisfying to say. Uh, unusual Jack priest Claxon. Yeah. Unusual yeah. priest Claxon. Yes, we haven't yes. got one of those in so long. Yeah. Oh. Oh. 
So I have a, I have like a little, um, I have a MIDI keyboard and R that I forgot to bring, but I should set it up so I can just be like, eh, 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 eh. like, yeah. So Jack Rue was a real life, and to, to quote his own Wikipedia, Jack Rue was a radical Catholic priest re- revolutionary. Like, uh, <laughs> my boy. Which <laughs> my boy. Um, he was wasn't part part of the Jacobins. He was part of. What was um, called by their enemies the Enrages movement, which means both the enraged and the mad people. Like, um, and they were they were like hard left. They were they were proto communist. Um, and Jack Rue was probably their most notable sort of uh, advocate. He uh, yeah, he he's was a too ma- left wing for Marat, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. No, they were friends, and then Marat eventually accused him of only wanting to be a, be a priest for the money, which seems like, considering he was arguing for universal redistribution of wealth, seems to have been a slightly uh, miss... What's it called? Uh, it, 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 it's the wrong diss, really. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, but um, in, the, in the play, Peter Weiss ignores this historical fact and has, uh, what's it called, um, Jack Roo as his disciple, uh, who, by being in his straitjacket represents the sort of straight-jacketed, legitimate voice of the left, which not, n- no side will allow to sort of come forward. And so if you're looking for what Peter Weiss actually thinks, it's the, the rants that Jack Rue has, which are mainly censored by the authorities of the, um, of the asylum, in that yeah. he's basically allowed not to say any of them, and that the Desaad had agreed to get rid of them uh-huh. in the play themselves. Um, what's it called? Uh, Jack, Jack Rue himself... Um, what's they call it? Uh, argued that the revolution was uh, like had altered the fate of the human race by making man equal to among themselves as they are by, for all eternity before God. Was so that was how he uh, merged Catholic uh, Catholicism with you know revolutionary praxis. Um, he was arrested during the terror and when and stabbed himself seventeen times in the chest, uh, which he survived um, <laughs> recover. And then before his um, before his trial, stabbed himself another seventeen times and died. So it's really got to wonder who's allowing all these shivs in the prison. Who's but, fucking counting? <laughs> 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 uh, but the Onrages were they were full on proto communists. The things that they were saying were basically directly presaged Marx and Engels' dialectical materialism, um, and would and his beliefs would be reborn in a man named Gracchus Babuff. Um, Another one in the Napoleonic era, who would be eventually tried and executed for his part in what he called uh, the conspiracy of equals, which is a better name for communism than communism. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, so if you're looking for Peter Weiss's, uh, Peter Weiss's view in, in what's it called, Marat's art, it's probably Jack Rue. Okay, well, I mean, um, so. And that is the play, The Persecution and Assassination of Jean-Paul Narat. Narat, eh? <laughs> Jean-Paul Naruto, as, as performed by the inmates of the Asylum of Charenton under the direction of the Marquis de Sade. Um, no! Why are you afraid to tell them? Listen to me! Okay, 
Okay, so piece of advice. Bit of a background on this playwright who wrote this, because this wasn't an actual like thing that doc- happened. No, this didn't <laughs> happen. This is a play. Sorry uh, for the spoilers. And it was in German originally. I think I should probably note this wasn't happening in English. It was translated by Jeffrey Skelton before it was adapted for the screen by Peter Brook. Peter Brook. And, um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, so Peter Weiss, he was, I was looking, I did a bit of um, background research on this guy, and I think I was like the way I put it when we were discussing it before, he's like, he's your standard issue 60s commie intellectual. Like, there's literally nothing, like, you know, I was, yeah, as you were saying, like, I, we both did that thing where it was like, okay, let's see what else he's done. And it's like, of course he wrote a novel called The Aesthetics of Resistance about, like, a student, a Marxist student and two uh, working class people meeting up in the, um, in the, in the, is it, like, the Berlin Antiquities Museum at night to talk about the aesthetics of resistance and to talk about revolutionary political ideas. And it's like, yeah, you know, of course he did that because, you know, he was, he's a very familiar figure even before we knew of him on this podcast. He's a thousand pages long. (laughs) Yeah, it's a a thousand pages long. And he also did some other... He did a lot of plays. Uh, The Wikipedia article, sorry, begins with states, it can can no more be usefully summarised than James Joyce's Ulysses. (laughs) (laughs) goes on to quote at length for an article about it. that's going to be our next episode. Maybe that's a bonus episode. We both try and read that. No, do Finnegan's Wake. Really, really commit. (laughs) Sure, you do Finnegan's Wake. I'll do this. But anyway, so uh, more background on uh, the old uh, Peter Weiss. Um... So before founding Vice Media, he went on. <laughs> Can resist. Um, he uh, he was a member of the um, literary uh, radical literary collective group Grupper Seventy Forty Seven. Isn't that a uh, what's it called a, um, a Lars von Trier thing? <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, and that lasted for twenty years, and you know ran from nineteen forty seven to nineteen sixty seven, which was when this film came out. And um, so maybe this film ended Group 47 or whatever. But um, yeah, he was originally of Austro-Hungarian origin. He uh, lived his early life in Bremen. He was never a German citizen, although he did move to Chislehurst for a while and he studied at a polytechnic. Again, like standard issue 60s commie guy. Uh, And and then he did this. So, um, So I did... Also, I think it's got to be said, Max, this, is, think, this is very good, yeah. by the way. This is a really, really excellent piece of standard comic guy literature. Like, yeah, this uh, is, I mean, this is like above average comic guy literature. Yeah. Um, but also, Max, you're 15% battery on this phone that we're both talking to Sean through. Oh, no. Uh, do you want to like plug yes, that in? Yes, yeah, sure. Yeah, well, uh, let's take a break. I'm going to go to the toilet. I'll plug it in. Okay. Yeah. So... All right, so Peter Weiss, okay, so he's like kind of standard commie. He uh, he was part of Grupper 46, uh, which is sounds like a fantastic industrial band that I would totally... And or a Nazi unit that you can't talk about anymore. Oh, yeah, oops. <laughs> uh, or an industrial band we can't talk about anymore. There's such a, there's such a blurred line between those two. But yeah, so like he was... Um, I think we can understand that he was... He was um, favorable to a revolution of a sort in that he was um he supported he sided with revolutionary cuba he was against american intervention in the vietnam war good old boy um and yeah so coming from this milieu i decided you know because like 
one of the things I wanted to bring into this podcast was the, um, I'm just going to check this is still all recording and everything is good. Yeah, it's all good. Uh, one of the things I was going to bring into this podcast was um, a bit of history about um, the asylum, because that's quite notable to talk about, because this is a play within a play that takes place in an asylum. And um, however, you know, I, I've done a bit of history of medicine in my time. Uh, I <laughs> Weird flex, but okay. Yeah, I am just going to refill my wine. Um, basically, um, so, you know, History of medicine, um, two of the key kind of like important texts we really need to talk about in the context of the time period in which this play was released was, well, I mean, the main one was um, was Madness and Civilization by um, Michel Foucault. You, even, so yeah, as I was saying, I've done a bit of history of medicine in my time. I had a um, uni uh, module in my final year of my undergrad. There was a history module called uh, Madness and Medicine. Uh, taught by this brilliant kind of like, um, kind of like dad historian, but actually really rigorous and, um, and academic, um, guy from Barnsley called Dr. Cherry, shout out to him, uh, the boy, um, who, yeah, basically he and many others fucking hated Foucault because, well, you know, many specifically historians of medicine um, and the history of the asylum hated Foucault because even though, so Foucault's um, book, for want of a better term, uh, Madness and Civilization, it's like, it pitches, it's, well, I felt it appropriate to um, bring up in the context of this because it, it very much draws a sort of narrative of the history of the asylum and the formation of our concept of madness um, as, a, as a sort of social entity. In, in the same kind of like quasi a historical idealized way that, you know, a play like this may summarize, summarize the events of the French Revolution, aside from the, the real nitty gritty of like difficult economic questions and political history such. But, um, so, you know, that's, that's why kind of coming from that background, I felt that uh, Madness Civilization, despite being a problematic text, was, was a good one to make my central point of reference and also I'd already read it, so that was useful. Um, but the point the point I make is that as a text, um, Madness and Civilization is drawing very heavily on another text which came out uh, 13 years before, it, no, 16 years before it was released, which was uh, the Dialectic of Enlightenment by Adorno and Horkheimer, uh, which who were Marxists uh, of the good ilk. <laughs> um, I, I guess the kind of the key the key point I raise in that context is the is the idea that um, the dialectic of enlightenment draws a sort of narrative development of this concept, this vast uh, multifaceted concept of the enlightenment as starting from, um, starting with kind of Baconian science. So that was the departure from the previously kind of like uh, Aristotelian slash Platonist kind of infused uh, scholastic philosophy, which was the dominant intellectual force in Europe for like the middle ages until kind of like the early modern period. And then the Baconian revolution was very much, or you know, like the, what's thought of as like the Baconian kind of empirical revolution uh, uh, formulated in his book, the Novus Organum, was uh, the kind of the formation of what we would now term Baconian science, which is experimental science. Uh, so science founded on the basis of experiments with like data-based results 
and hypotheses and theories that... Um, Fire is a fluid. Y- yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and, like, the, the impact of this was quite significant because, like, it shook up quite a few things because it meant that we were no longer beholden to the, to the ancients and that um, the nature of the universe was something that could be... that was just there in front of us to comprehend if we had the proper tools. And to give a very brief and succinct and one might say reductive uh, summary of a very, very significant and elaborate book, The Dialect of Enlightenment basically serves as a um, as an articulation of how this fundamentally scientific understanding of the universe developed into a kind of ideological force that then was able to kind of influence many, many different aspects of public life. Uh, and, 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 you know, to, and it was kind of like, you know, the transition from a kind of scientific understanding into a political philosophy. And, you know, this obviously gave, gave rise to figures like Thomas Hobbes and people. Um, and, um, and, you know, it's to set up this idea of, of reason, but, um, but also it was a, but it was this principle of the enlightenment, the, the political economy that it, um, envisaged was very this the it came came around this i the baconian idea centered around the idea of kind of like humanity's ability to dominate nature by its inherent capacity of reason which allowed it to um break apart the atoms and like restructure you know and identify how how they will fit together with an end point in restructuring them and this this led to what was very much a kind of like capitalist mercantile uh, understanding of how the world worked that fo- that basically worked very very well from a bourgeois viewpoint and therefore became the uh, dominating uh, philosophy of the bourgeoisie and um, to, to, to present another like great uh, greatly maybe even reductive statement the reason why the um, the enlight- you know, the French Revolution or what you know the various various phases of the French Revolution, ultimately failed to um, present this idea of liberty, of a kind of egality uh, and fraternity, um, was because even though it had, you know, it had, I guess, I guess I can just sum this up in the lines that appear in the play themselves, in that song that was done with the wonderful rendition by Judy Collins, which is um, talking and talking, talking in a language that no one understands, describing the leaders. about the rights that we rested with our own bleeding hands. And that talks about a kind of, that speaks to the tension between um, the necessary kind of violent upheaval and act of the pursuit of liberty by the people on the ground, you know, the, 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 you know, the people, the poor, uh, resting their own rights. And then how this was, um, this started a process, but then the momentum was taken out of their hands because the intellectual structure that was still in place um, to kind of take, you know, to formulate what came next was still a continuation of the, um, was still a continuation of the, um, of the bourgeois um, principles of the enlightenment that came before. And therefore, even though this great kind of like class revolution had taken place, it ultimately backslided because, um, because it could only backslide because this was the this was the, the this was the um, the situation that they were presented with and that was that was the pattern that was dictated by the intellectual classes at the time and hence it didn't result in a revolution it it, it 
and I think in the lines of the play again, it led from um, revolutionary fervor to unrest. I think Marat's quote is, "Yeah, we invented the revolution, but we don't know how to run it." Yeah, yeah, basically. Yeah. And so the bourgeois stepped in, and mm. then it was kind of you know a continuation of things that had already been going on for a very long time under the ancient regime of the um, of of the bourgeoisie, and previously the aristocracy in the interests of the bourgeoisie. Um, and so that's, that's, that's the dialectic of enlightenment. And the reason I, and so basically going on to madness and civilization, um, the, um, this is kind of like, it's presenting a kind of, co not a counter narrative, but a concurrent narrative where this principle of reason that emerged from the Baconian, um, the Baconian revolution in the sciences, um, had a had a formative part in the foundation of the asylum and this is why i this is why the fact that these are events of the french revolution through the lens of an asylum are so very significant because um and this is Foucault the the narrative he draws is this idea that um the the institutional structures that would eventually become the asylum were a continuation of other social forces. And he actually like draws, he goes right back to the medieval period where he talks about like the decline in the use of leprosariums. Um, and you know, how, how these had died out towards the end of the, um, the end of the, uh, of the middle ages uh, to almost be replaced or to have their function supplanted by forms of carceral justice. So prisons and workhouses uh, and these, in the in 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 a continuation of that kind of enlightenment principle that was fundamentally mercantile, was used as a as a as a tool of state and as a tool of capital because it was the uh, utilization or or if nothing else just like dispensation or or, or just like removal of an underclass of people who were deemed inconvenient and so the and this concluded. This included people who were mentally ill, but it also included beggars. It included, uh, you know, heretics. It included people who'd broken the law. It included criminals, and so, um, and so, the asylum for a long time existed as a kind of punitive system because it was part of the wider kind of prison system, uh, and was an extension of state power. And it was over time that um, these things, but it was kind of like it was. The, the, the great kind of event that Foucault brings up is when this system evolved and this, this evolution happened when asylum reformers, so the names he brings up are people like Tuke and Pinel, who were regarded as great kind of humanitarian reformers of the asylum, who kind of, um, who separated, it separated the mad off from the criminals. And so it was this, it created the sense that like asylums, uh, no longer harboured both under the same roof, and so the mad would be treated with clemency. And what it essentially did, following again kind of scientific principles, was to turn the institution of the asylum into a kind of medical thing. Um, and so, and that was that was regarded as this great break because while it um, while it was essentially a, a you know a good humanitarian thing to do. What it also accomplished was a realization of a principle that had been going very strongly within the 
the overall current of the Enlightenment up until this time, which was the fundamental separation of reason and unreason. And so, um, and so the mad, uh, you know, for want of a better term, I'm using, I'm using contemporary terminology, um, became this symbol of unreason against which the civilizing, civilizing forces of reason were able to um, present themselves as authorities and therefore be the protectors and the healers, but also the controllers of. We're modern, enlightened, and we don't agree with locking up patients. We prefer therapy through education and especially art so that our hospital may play its part, faithfully following, according to our lights, the Declaration of Human Rights. One of the reasons why I've been framing this as a theological thing, which I, I, I think I passed over a little bit, is like, I mean, there was the connection to the Leprosarium. Obviously, not everyone listening is going to be a scholar of medieval history, but those were monastic institutions that were run for, like, the arms of the poor um, by, but, you know, on kind of, like, very, very kind of Christian grounds. But, um... This conflict of reason and unreason, this, as well as the divorce from the um, the idea of criminality and um, and madness occupying the same building, there was also uh, the theological dimension I mentioned is the um, is the connection between unreason and sin. The idea that um, the people have gone mad because they are being punished for moral failings. And so, you know, this, this is something that dates back to, you know, biblical accounts of people like uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, who I believe was a Sumerian king or Babylonian, who Babylonian. is famously uh, robbed of his reason by God for his arrogance. And so sentenced to, sentenced to like, live in the, in the wilds as a madman for many, many years before being redeemed. Oh, I don't know what actually happened to him, but he was immortalized in that famous, wonderful engraving by William Blake. Yeah, the if Matrix. I remember correctly, it's, um, if I remember correctly, it's the prophet Daniel who sent to heal Nebuchadnezzar, if I remember. Like, the book of Daniel was fa is, is a fa absolutely fascinating text for so many reasons. It's, um, yeah. That had nothing to do with Murat Saab, but there you go, you should go read the book of Daniel. Yeah. Um, okay. Anyway, so, so, the Bible is the real right. good news. Yeah. And then this, ideology gave birth to the form of the asylum which is what we see in the in the Marat Saad which is a a, a, a a an institution that is a seat of power but also presenting itself as a necessary mercy and then this became an analog for the bourgeoisie if, as a justifying well yeah in the context of this um, became symbolic of like the bourgeoisie's a, a justification for a, a symbolic justification for the bourgeoisie's domination of the forces that were the French Revolution. So it's like the bourgeoisie are in power for your own good, and that's why we have. Um, but that, that, but you know, but obviously things weren't resolved, and people were still poor, and that's why in this one room in the Charenton we had a microcosm of everything that was happening of the great class struggle uh, of revolutionary France and beyond. And that is, you know, and that's, and that's, and that's very, you know, very significant because it's significant, I think, because Peter Weiss knew, you know, understood this. This was the, I believe, the kind of oeuvre that Peter Weiss was working within. And this, I, and, you know, I'm, I'm kind of like, I'm kind of setting up here for what then become you know that's that's the ideology 
and that gives birth to kind of to the dramaturgical dimension of this because what I I, I I'm and I'm sure you you with your um, you you had some things you definitely wanted to say about Artaud and the reason why I believe that's significant is because um, theatrically this was very very important because um, as well as being a demonstration of this great political um, kind of nexus of forces coming together because of the legacy of the Enlightenment, it also had this theological underpinning. Um, and by that, I mean that we have an almost kind of like demiurgic status given to both, um, both uh, the Marquis de Sade and the um, the director, who is the hospital director? Can you remember the name? Yeah, it's Cumier. Cumier. Uh, in that, so um, who was he? Was, was a real person? Yeah, yeah. As was the Marquis de Sade. Yeah. <laughs> and so he was actually played by um, oh, uh, what's his name? The man who played Joker. Um, what's it? Joaquin Phoenix. Joaquin Phoenix in the <laughs> what's it called? The notably historically inaccurate movie Quills, where uh, Jeffrey Rush plays the Marquis de Sade. Oh, no way. Yeah. Okay, so basically, so. Basically, one of the things I, 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 you know, I'm sure you have a, a certain point that you want to draw into this dramaturgy, but so we have, um, we have Marquis de Sade functioning as effectively a demiurge and that he's the most powerful thing in this world and he's controlling, supposedly controlling all the events that are taking place on stage um, and thus kind of bringing his own vision into reality, but only within the confines that he is... Um, permitted to operate under which are set by another kind of higher almost like higher demiurge figure which is this this guy who um has no who is like a great figure of power that's lent to him by the bourgeois enlightenment um yeah but like he's not even god napoleon is god he's just like he's got he's got absolute power inside the asylum until it's overthrown um, but then, in, you know, outside of that, he's also got a bit of power, but ultimately that power is, is the world, and that is the world as run by Napoleon. Um, yeah, just like, you know, that, I, I felt that was just a fairly succinct justification of why I think this play is brilliant. Um, perhaps you would like to reflect on that. I've uh, kind of lost my train there. But that was all right, wasn't it? That was pretty freaking good. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so... I understand, like, there's um, there's a certain dis- academic discipline of dramaturgy, which uh, had some rather radical takes in the early 20th century among uh, figures and adherents connected to the Surrealist movements, among them one uh, Antonin Artaud, although perhaps that's not the segue you were after. I'll, I'll take it. Uh... <laughs> 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 okay, so, yeah, so um, I want to so, talk I, a bit about... Just, just... Bit, bit of a metatextual thing. I broke the necklace I was wearing mid that thing because I was fiddling with it so much the, the leather strap broke. That's the story of the revolution. <laughs> okay. I've done my bit. Uh, I'm so drunk. What the hell have I done? All right. Okay. Here I go. So, I want to talk a little bit more about the formal aspects of the uh, production because oh, I, I think it was uh, I think it was last episode uh Lucy impudently referred to me as as an Arto expert which freaks me out because I suddenly got really afraid people might ask me questions about Arto and I was like oh, I've only read a little bit. Um yes, yeah, so Antonio is friends. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so yeah, anyway, 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 anyway. 
Anyway, Arto, he's uh, yes, another one of the odd Frenchmen that we are bringing up uh, in this episode. We love our odd Frenchmen. Shout out to our boys. He had great hair. It's, you really should look up a picture of yeah. Arto because he looks I mean, fucking amazing. We don't love every odd Frenchman. That fucking um, that guy they've got, you know, the guy that compared himself to Zeus at the moment. He's a fucking oh Jupiterian, Mar- uh, not Marat. Uh, <laughs> we, we don't need to say his name on Jupiterian this podcast. Jupiterian asshole. Mm. The one who people thought was good for a bit because he beat Marine Le Pen. Yeah, that's a low fucking bar, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Actually, on a tangential note, unashamedly tangential note, I heard about the uh, the pedo author who had been in France, who had been openly, openly writing about his sex with children for literally decades and now as a man in his 80s like finally 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 the french legal system has been convinced to have a look at this obviously sketchy man and uh i was actually i've not looked up looked up what's happened to him since i've read about him uh, a couple of months ago because it was the whole thing was just so unpleasant but yeah it's just this like one of those not one of those author of sort of like very like violent erotic french novels in which he'd sort of and in his like he'd published published volume after volume of his own personal diaries perfectly openly which was talking talked about his sex of underage children and talking about what a wonderful experience this is and it's taken all this time for like people for his for, for his victims to finally manage to convince the French intellectual establishment to realise this man is clearly a bad, bad man. I mean, not to go all Jonathan Meads on this, but I do feel like, you know, we have this idea, you know, we have this kind of cult of the French intelligentsia, which was born out of um, the kind of, I mean, uh, I think it's like, I yeah, well, I mean, it's Rosie Bredotti actually gives a very, very good summary of this timeline, but in, in her book about posthumanism, about how uh, the combination of like kind of post-war kind of like uh, dislocation and humiliation in the kind of like secondary position it took in the reclamation after, you know, re- the rebuilding after World War Two, and combined with the still notably rigorous educational system put in by Napoleon, that we have this idea of like, you know, the French... French intelligentsia is just like this amazing force because we can't understand them because they're also really fucking good at what they do. But it's meant that a lot of bizarre shit has just kind of gone under the radar because the the French intelligentsia are just very good at coming up with elaborate justifications for it that make people think, oh yeah, that's, that's significant and then move on because they don't want to look stupid. But, um, but wasn't there like one of the major post-structuralist philosophers just like kind of was like, oh yeah, it's really nice. We must, you know, deconstruct various notions, you know, like these master, servant, you know, boss, husband, wife, gender, you know, man, adult, child. And then... Um, but just... what is the proletariat consent? <laughs> exactly. It's like we are blindsided by all this kind of like highfalutin bullshit. And so the, the, the systems of civic infrastructure, it's, it's no surprise to me that they would just like let a rampant asshole pedo go unpunished for decades. Yeah, so his name is Gabe, uh, Gabriel uh, Matzneff, which I'm sure is not how you pronounce it, but, but like just the line from... God, the line from his Wikipedia article is chilling. Uh, in spite of having described his paedophile and sexual tourism activities in several of his books, as well as on his official website, he remained sheltered from any criminal prosecution throughout his literary career and benefited from a wide and enthusiastic support within the French literary world. All that despite the fact his books didn't sell well and he was ignored by the general reading public. <laughs> 
Where's Polanski right now? Oh no, Polans- <laughs> Polanski has come out with a played a blinder recently. I don't know if you heard about this. What? But Polanski recently did an adaptation of an officer. So we've gone true and on. This is like the an- this is now the anti pedophile. <laughs> <laughs> This is worth hearing because it does it does tie into French history. But Polanski recently directed an adaptation of An Officer and a Spy, which is a Robert Harris novel about the Dreyfus Affair, which is where a Jewish um, member of the, the French general staff was accused on spurious evidence of having leaked information to the Prussians during the Franco-Prussian War and basically exiled to a small island in the middle of nowhere where he was chained up in the sun indefinitely and the french military uh, mili- not indefinitely i mean we have pretty pretty cognizant data of like how long someone i mean but the, 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 sun the only reason it stopped was but after years it was it was proved that because he clearly 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 didn't do it but the french military establishment was like it would be a bit awkward if it came out that we just did this anti-semitism so we're gonna squash any attempts to disprove this fact and like the and it's, it's a really really good book by what's it called uh, robert harris but Polanski did this movie very much apparently hammering home the point that he is Dreyfus and he has been unfairly maligned and chained up in the sun by the, what's it called, the uh, international community for, but, but Dreyfus, the but the thing is, Dreyfus didn't do it, which is the, the point that he seems to have missed. Like, <laughs> I, you know, I'm just like, as an aside, before we plummet into the depths of the theatre of cruelty, I would... I would not be opposed to the fact, the idea of like this podcast just full on pivoting to conspiracy theories slash like gumshoe detective investigations <laughs> of like the elites and their bullshit and their horrific crimes Could you do- and the, the pressing need to punish them in a way reminiscent of our boy, Marat. I think you need to do this podcast in moody black and white, if you're going to do yeah. that, though. Like... Max, do you want to start, like, another side podcast? We can keep all, like, kind of the arts criticism and stuff, but, like... We... But much, much more florid monologues while smoking. Like, <laughs> I, like, I like to think... I mean, you, I mean, this is the week where UFOs became officially real again. Just the, yeah. Pentagon, the Pentagon confirmed that footage that had been leaked years ago was, in fact, genuine. Did you see that the, the Greg... Newkirk tweet about that where um, where it, everyone was like tweeting I was like Greg Greg what's the deal with this what's the deal with this and he he just tweeted back look it's a UFO all right shout shout out to the Helio crew we really like shout out to uh, fucking Greg and Dana <laughs> okay we should resume so, the podcast the theater of cruelty Sean <laughs> yeah what's up with that I understand this kind of dramaturgical theory right Arto right Ant- Antonin Arto the boy the man himself uh, so uh, yeah Arto was a uh, a French um, he was a writer of um, plays a playwright there we go uh, he was a playwright actor <laughs> he was a playwright actor author sorry what did you do <laughs> dreamweaver <laughs> plus actor <laughs> um but but Otto was a very peculiar man and, and especially his his beef basically was that he believed that French theatre was just all shit now really it was and the reason it was all terrible is because it was trying to an absolute shit house I believe is the exact quote this is the bit of the podcast where it's just Sean reading from books now, so uh, buckle yeah, up, boy. Oh, oh. like, keep up the energy, really get us into that. Into the... People need to fucking learn something. <laughs> <laughs> 
given theatre as we see it here, this is uh, this is an extract from production and metaphysics. Okay. Given, given, given theatre as we see it here, one would imagine there is nothing more to know than whether we will have a good fuck, whether we will go to war or be cowardly enough to sue for peace, how we will put up with our petty moral anxieties, whether we will become conscious of our complexes, or whether our complexes will silence us. More rarely does the debate rise to a social level, or do we question our social or ethical system. Our theatre never goes so far as to ask whether by chance this social or ethical system is iniquitous or not. So for Arto, the problem that's occurred is theatre has come to view itself as being subordinate to language, uh, but it's just a form of literature which happens to be spoken aloud, and it's not a spatial art form. Uh, the problem is that the point of theatre had become dialogue, had become the lines, and everything else was quite literally just set dressing. Arto, you've got to get them in the right order. That's the part. <laughs> Sorry, I'm going to stop with the Garth Marenghi Arto, <laughs> but he's our boy. Uh, Arto wanted theatre to become so sort of very distinctly theatrical, and in order for this to happen, he kind of repeatedly draws uh, parallels with religion and with magical ritual in particular. Uh, Theatre uh, for Arto had to embrace the unreal, the symbolic, the metaphysical and the ritualistic in order to redeem itself from the devil curse of realism. Yeah, and fuck that. Except for, specific... like, Soviet realism. Sport... Poor one okay. Soviet realism. <laughs> Socialist realism. <laughs> As I was saying. Uh, above everything else, Arto wanted theatre to be metaphysical. So, And by this we meet, because the word metaphysics, and metaphysical is a horribly abused word, but in the philosophical sense, when we talk about metaphysics, we are simply talking about the first principles. But we're talking about the conditions whereby any such thing can be at all. So Arto... Arto he wanted theatre to embody metaphysical principles and metaphysical investigation, and by which and the only way it can do so would be to move away from didactic uh, spoken language as the primary element of theatre and instead embrace a symbolic form of theatre, a insane crazed kind of theatre. It's quite difficult to imagine what this would look like but I just want to mention as a weird little uh, aside here is that in the SAO they mentioned uh, production of metaphysics, there was a part, he makes a passing refer uh, reference to René Guénon, uh, quoting uh, Guénon saying saying to our purely western manner our anti-poetic truncated way of regarding first principles apart from the forceful massive state of mind corresponding to them uh, I, I think the reason I draw this out is Gwenon was just a bizarre guy who is one of the fathers of what's called the traditionalist school which is an esoteric philosophy that holds that all religions and mystery schools embody the, perenni the perennially true original metaphysical occult tradition and like when almost just like i i wrote um uh about that article for um not um for uh, nothing magazine 
uh, shout out to them. I wrote an article about syncretism and traditionalism and Grenon uh, features in that. Because Grenon, like, he just began his career as this dilettante occultist on the retainer from Mum and Dad, who was initiated into, I think it's, I think it's 11 different forms of initiation he went under, uh, very, all of which kind of more or less contradict one another, like competing schools of Rosicrucianism and Freemasonry, including briefly trying to re-found the Knights Templar after he had a seance in which he met the ghost of Jacques de Moly. <laughs> who, who hasn't uh, done that? He then became a conservative Catholic for a while, <laughs> who, eventually, who eventually moved to Cairo, converted to Islam and joined a Sufi order. Did this... Did I, <laughs> Did he start out as an accelerationist and then? And <laughs> uh, and his ideas went on to influence a whole ton of other people, including self-described super fascist Julius Evola. So very like that that's guy. A, but yeah, that's a kind of just like I've no real particular reason for mentioning any of that. But the reason, uh, but there is a. Um, but anyway, moving on because I will show how this is all relevant in a little little bit. Uh, what Arto called his vision and what the theatre should be, he called it the theatre of cruelty. And uh, let me just look, sorry, just looking through my notes here. Yeah, I had so many notes I just haven't referred to in this. I like oh, notes of the week. All right, I just got to. You might be wondering, listen, what the theatre of cruelty would look like. And here's a description here from the from the first manifesto of the theatre of cruelty. Every show will contain physical, objective elements perceptible to all. Shouts, groans, apparitions, surprise, dramatic moments of all kinds. The magic beauty of the costumes modelled on certain ritualistic patterns. Brilliant lighting, vocal, incantational beauty, attractive harmonies, rare musical notes, object colours, the physical rhythm of the moods, or the moves who build and fall will be wedded to the beat of moves familiar to all the tangible appearance of new surprising objects masks puppets many feet high abrupt lighting changes the physical action of lighting stimulating heat and cold and so on beautiful so it would have been crazy anyway so he, he lists several things you think uh, so whenever I hit, whenever I've like read that, I just remember that bit from this, that bit from Futurama, where Farnsworth just goes on that rant where he says, "Oh, some people even call me mad, and why? Because I dared, I dared to dream of my own race of atomic monsters, uh, and so on." Um, when he's talk about this is where, but and so Otto's influence because uh, like Arto only uh, was only ever able to stage one of his theatre's cruel theatrical productions and um, it was not a success <laughs> and yet Woody Allen is still making films uh, by accident I've never seen a Woody Allen film like I didn't like set out not to I just realised at one point oh, I've never seen a Woody Allen film then found out everything about him so well I'll keep up with that <laughs> then you just go around like telling people hey I've never seen a Woody Allen film and they're like good great great brilliant <laughs> so when it comes to what Arto envisaged being um, you know suitable subject text 
for the Theatre of Cruelty, one of the passing suggestions he makes in the first manifesto of the Theatre of Cruelty is one of the Marquis de Sade's tales. It's eroticism transposed, allegorically represented and cloaked in the sense of a violent externalisation of cruelty masking the remainder. But in the second manifesto, he specifically says, and again, I just hear this in Farnsworth voice, just because the sheer intensity of it, the second manifesto he states that the first if I can find it, here we go. The first theatre of cruelty show will be entitled The Conquest of Mexico and will indeed be The Conquest of Mexico. And what he states there, because although like throughout he's been talking about how this is going to be metaphysical theatre and that kind of like calls to mind the idea that this is going to be ritualistic abstract theatre. They won't really have anything to do with the real world, and especially because of Arto's anti-realism. But when he's justifying the decision to me- no, that the first production will be The Conquest of Mexico, which was never made, is he gives lots of like justifications for it. And he's saying that the reason we need to do this is because this will be dealing with colonialism. It will be dealing with the reality of colonisation. It will be dealing with the way that we have demonised um, other cultures and the assumption that Catholic European culture is the superior form of culture as opposed to um, the indigenous culture in Mexico, in which which he states in the Second Manifesto was more ordered, more peaceful, more harmonious than Catholic European culture. And this is where I kind of like hit a brick wall when it comes to my knowledge of the history of pre-Columbian Central America and Mexico, is that he claims this is because Mexican culture's foundational event was a revolution, while the revolution is more of an interruption in the progress of specifically French books of Catholic European history, so more broadly so construed. And so he wants to have this play occur as a way of calling all of these um, assumptions about society and about culture and about politics and about civilization into into question in the metaphysical in the, in the metaphysical way he wants to burrow down to what are the first principles from from whence comes everything else and Arto is absolutely although like I said he his actual attempts to put these productions on are largely failed I mean they were very they were astonishingly ambitious like he says that um for staging for instance he says um oh god oh god where was it he says it uh let me just find the quote here Oh yes, so abandoning the architecture of present-day theatres, we will rent some kind of barn or hangar, rebuilt along the lines culminating in the architecture of some churches, holy places, or certain Tibetan temples. Like, it would have been very difficult for him to have made this happen. But Arto's kind of shadow has fallen quite long over um, theatre, modern uh, theatre. And he's absolutely presence in the in the sort of like shameless anti-realism of Marat Saad because one thing we've not mentioned is every 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 line in this play is um is is in rhyme it's rhyme it's all rhyming couplets except for the songs um I suppose songs or songs rhyme you know what I mean yeah syncopation I think you remember no, being very drunk watching me the first time with you and like Wait, hold on. Is this all fucking rhyme? Like, uh, about a quarter of the way through the movie. <laughs> Max and I watched this for the first time after, I think it was like October or something, sort of like out of a solemn sense of cultural obligation. We'd gone to see Joker. I had a fairly good time seeing it. Then got back, had 
so much wine i was i actually can't quite believe how drunk i was it was one of the few occasions i genuinely ended up seeing double by the end of the night and max was like oh there's this film i've been wanting to watch for ages it's about marat and Sa- Desada's put it on and it's one of those things where sort of like you're watching something which you realize is so stupendously good they're just kind of burnt through by drunken stupor as well oh god this is actually absolutely amazing but i'm gonna have to close one eye now to because i'm seeing two screens now so i can actually get through this so, so it, are, um, we, are we are we talking about how good the film is now yeah we should are, mention are, that he's brilliant with gloves off okay oh, so, but, but, so but before before we before we transition away from arto I just feel it's worth pointing out that Antonio Nato actually played Marat in the what's they call it the 1920s uh, Napoleon silent movie five and a half hour silent movie. <laughs> also, <laughs> that's 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 fucking remarkable. Reading. Mm. All right. Well, okay. Sure, well, I go. mean, like, so Sean Arto, what what do you got to say about him? I would say anything to Arto. So, like, before, um, so. Yeah, just I'm just gonna like this isn't actually sort of connected to the play itself. I want to talk about why he refers to it as cr- the theatre of cruelty, and there's a couple of remarks going to quote from the fir- uh, the first one is from uh, the first the first manifesto of the theatre of cruelty, where he states cruelty there can be no spectacle without an element of cruelty as the basis of every show in our present degenerative state, metaphysics must be made to enter the mind through the body. Which is a fantastic, which is a fantastic image. And he goes on in a in a, in a uh, letter. Um, he goes on to say when he's defining what he means by this, and this actually has some very interesting parallels with Sard and the vision, like the inevitability of the torturer willing to be tortured in a Sard in a Sardian novel. He says. We are wrong to make cruelty we are wrong to make cruelty mean merciless bloodshed, pointless pursuits unrelated to physical ills. The Ethiopian Ra, carting off defeated princes and imposing servitude on them, was not driven to do so by a desperate thirst for blood. In fact, cruelty is not synonymous with bloodshed, martyred flesh, or crucified enemies. Associating cruelty and torture is only one minor aspect of the problem. Practicing cruelty involves a higher determination to which the executioner tormentor is also subject and which he also must be resolved to endure when the time comes. Above all, cruelty is very lucid, a kind of strict control and submission to necessity. There is no cruelty without consciousness, without the application of consciousness, for the latter gives practising any act in life a blood-red tinge, its cruel overtones, since it is understood that being alive always means the death of someone else. So for Arto, cruelty is more a cold and clear vision of the truth of things and of the violence of the truth of things. I think there's a kind of tension here with Desaad then, isn't there? Because Arto's vision of cruelty sounds almost like the Baconian enlightened vision that the world is as it is, with us as the master, with with us wielding the knife of reason to dissect the world and not reveling in it. You know, sort of like saying that this is necessity, for me to live, something else must die. And that's actually a very interesting tension there with the Sars vision. And I think maybe this is the kind of like the cold light of metaphysics here to which um, the Sard is opposed. Because, you know, the Sard the rails against a god he doesn't believe in and against a nature who he knows is death to him because there is no mind to nature. And so there's a kind of absurdity, a knowing absurdity in the Sard's ambition to, defa- you know, to deface the face 
of the nature that gave him the desires he has because he knows that nature has no face to deface. Interesting um, point. Um, In Dessard, at no point is there ever a reference to an animal or a plant because it's nature is so far beyond what he's into that it's like it's purely a human world in Dessard's thing because nature yeah. is beyond him. Sorry, just to back up your point. Thank you. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> and but when it comes to and when it comes to the put to the Artodian 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 God, I, stupid bloody language. Uh, there's, there's, wonderful, there's a wonderful review of a production of Marat Saud from 2011 in The Guardian by Michael Billington, who seems to be a proper gentleman. Uh, uh, the Guardian. Just generally this, putting uh, that out there. So this, Let the this, press die, kill it if you have to. This production, like, I just actually want to point out that because of sort of like the connection here, there are points where sort of like you're talking and I actually have no idea what you're saying because I'm trying to speak at the same time. So I just hear stuff like echoes when I think I'm trying to make a point. Anyway, anyway, anyway. anyway. Well, anyway. You're, you've, got a, you've got a hearty surprise in store for you for much of this episode. <laughs> Anyway, uh, so this production, which he gave three out of five stars, but also prompted numerous walkouts. There's a, <laughs> there's a, quote, there's a quote from here where he's saying, um, and when the asylum inmates run riot at the end of the first act, Nielsen, the director, spares us nothing, including the sight of a naked Nicholas Day being gang raped to the front of the stage. This and much more strikes me as <clears throat> Arto for Arto's sake rather than a clarification of the play's central ideas. And um, this, but as well as that, Arto isn't the only figure that kind of like hovers over this play. The other, I think actually, arguably in some ways, more obvious referent, perhaps true referent, is Bertolt Brecht, who we talked about in that episode oh, yeah, uh, yeah. L- uh, last year, or maybe the year well, before. Maybe. definitely House. read something other than like the, 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 the threat in the opera. Which I didn't read. I listened to the Peter Bile. Yeah, the reason I mentioned that is because um, the reason the I mentioned that is not. <laughs> the reason I mentioned. Go on, Sean. The reason I mentioned that is because what we have with this film is we have like I think it's worth mentioning. So we've we've alluded to it, alluded to it already, but it's kind of like casting into clearer light, like the number of levels there are in what we're watching. We're watching. Um, a play being put on by the inmates of this asylum being watched by an audience in this asylum by the the family of the the asylum's governor but as well as that we are watching a film of a play which is about a play being put on in whom the audience are characters um so we have these are very typical brechtian devices whereby the audience are constantly reminded of the irreality of what it is they're actually watching, but the fact that they are spectators to a performance that this is not real, but this is something that you ought to have distance from. And this is especially achieved by um, the songs, which we've mentioned a couple of times, which are all absolute bangers, but they're also typically Brechtian, because Brecht would make sure there were songs because he wanted them there as political didn't didactic devices which would implant the ideas from the play 
into the audience's head in a way that's very easy to recall because you can just remember the song that you heard. And indeed, like they are incredibly catchy um, numbers. And I think it's actually remarkable the fact that, of course, these songs have been translated from the German and often you know, translating a song butchers its rhythm. But Thank you, they Jeffrey were- Skelton. Uh, to, to, cut, to cut in for a second, those so sorry, said songs actually go against one of the main rules of musicals in that songs are meant to advance the plot. Whereas every single song in Marat Saad is independent from the plot and has nothing to do with anything and actually breaks up the action, like which is which thing. is not... It, I mean, it's a very small thing, but like the way that musical stunt numbers are meant to work, the play does them in the complete inverse. Anyway, that's, that, that is my point. And yeah, and that's, yeah, why, that's why... And- you know, again, the whole point like, of, of the Brechtian epic theatre is to have these breakages there where you are like you and you have it in the form of the governor coming and halting the play when it becomes too political and saying, no, we're not having it like this. We want it like this because you are conveying the wrong message here. And, you know, just as a device for the audience that calls you, your attention is being caused to a particular element, which a, a bullish or authority figure is saying, well, none of that. Um that's, and you know, this again is kind of like what we've already said, you know, this is typical commie 60s intellectual territory. So having these Brechtian devices there in order to make this play a, kind of like an unashamedly didactic experience. Um, to the extent that I, I'm not convinced Arto would recognise this as a work of the theatre of cruelty because of that. And the fact that it, even though it, it is utilising all of these anti-real theatrical devices, it's still... I mean, actually, he wouldn't regard it as theatre of cruelty because it has a script. <laughs> and, and the theatre of cruelty should not have a script. Everything kind of, like, is composed upon the stage as the production unfolds, and which is why he puts so much emphasis on, on like, the, the discipline of cruelty because you can only... Well, as, as anyone who's been to a bad, Im- bad improv and good improv will be able to tell you, the difference is how good they are anyway. You know, sort of like, bad, you know, sort of like someone who doesn't actually know anything about... Um, yeah, about comedy and about stagecraft and so on, will fall on their face if they try and do improv. And uh, but someone who actually has a lot of knowledge about how it should be done—that's when you're at the point where you can actually start to improvise on it and to experiment with it. Um, and you know, maybe, and I think this is the same. And and actually, I think that can be applied to because although I've not actually seen a, seen a stage production of Marat Saab, I absolutely would once we're out of quarantine. Um, I think one of the things that's obvious looking at this preliminary it's um looking at this film is seeing just how good everybody in it is that they are absolute professionals you have to be that good in order to appear like a true lunatic on on stage they are so they're all so good it's such a good film but again we should sort of mention that we should, that. We should talk good. about the cast i also well, you're <laughs> not done yet but I also think this might be a good time to mention, uh, Max, you have an anecdote about Patrick McGee. Uh, should we, can I just give a bit of background to Patrick McGee, in fact? Because, oh, yeah. Like, we've been saying Patrick, so, like, whenever I've described the Dune, well, I think it was, like, when I was describing, like, the forthcoming Dune adaptation to my mother, and she was like, you keep saying Stellan Skarsgård like it's meant to mean something, what has he been in? And I was like, well, he was in uh, Chernobyl and a bunch of other stuff. And then I was like, okay, the bunch of other stuff is basically like Dogville and some other things that I hadn't seen. So I just like, it's just a name that kind of has a ring of authority Mm -hmm. to it. But um, in the same vein, I've been talking about like, oh, Patrick McGee. 
Um, but Patrick McGee is an interesting figure. Perhaps, I think, probably for listeners of this podcast, I imagine, like, the, the most significant reference point will be one of two things. The first being the uh, guy that plays the writer... Uh, like political activist guy whose um, house is broken into in a Clockwork Orange. Uh, so his uh, and like yeah, he's the guy that um, his wife is raped by Alex and his droogs, and then she dies, and then he's goes nuts, and then he has that kind of. They come back, and he's got the bodyguard there, who is played by uh, Dave um, fucking Vader. What's his name? David Prowse. David Prowse, who played Darth Vader but wasn't voiced as Darth Vader. You're part um, of the Rebel Alliance and a traitor. Yes. <laughs> Who George Lucas apparently to this day thinks is Scottish. Because <laughs> he, he's an idiot. <laughs> but um, basically, yeah, so he's he's that guy in Clockwork Orange. I forget his name. But he's also in... Think of any Hammer Horror film you've ever seen. He's probably in most of them. He was just a fucking... He's in so much. He's in... You know the the only ever Michael Moorcock adaptation, the um, uh, time thing with Jerry Cornelius, I forget what it's called, but he's in that. Um, he is just like, a, he's a dude. He's like a terrifying presence because he's like this little terrifying Renfield guy. Uh, no, I, I'm, I'm good, Max, I don't need more wine. Um, and um, yeah, so Patrick, and he is the absolutely fucking perfect Marquis de Sade because he is demonic. He has fucking terrifying demonic energy to him well to give to give the the yeah. the, 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 point the man that, behind the yeah, demonology yeah. that during the filming of uh what's it called um uh, with Murat Saad uh he had to be bailed out of prison for being arrested taking place during a large sadomasochistic gay orgy so yeah. I mean one could argue that that was the you know just he was doing a Jared Leto but I feel that was more just you know for the crack of it you know <laughs> he is a fucking he's one of our boys <laughs> one of our main boys on the pod mm. but yeah, don't, I don't you know, sorry don't you know that because of this 90 year old lady you know or something yes a 90, the 90 year old lady who had to bail him out <laughs> 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 Does anyone have a personal connection to Glenda Jackson? I don't. No, that's sure. right. Uh, I, I mean, I live um, six boroughs over from the borough of Lewisham. That's like you're, you're basically family. Yeah. <laughs> so um, Glenda Jackson, who plays uh, Charlotte Corday in this, she um, she's fucking great. She also played. Um, Queen Elizabeth in the BBC series Elizabeth R, and she was magnificent. Elizabeth Origins. <laughs> Elizabeth Origins, yeah. <laughs> no, Elizabeth, um, Elizabeth Covenant. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and then she was like an, a Labour Party MP for the borough, borough of Lewisham for a while, and then in, she had a break from acting, and she did stand as a candidate for the, 90, for the 2000 Labour nomination for Mayor of London, which obviously went to I think it went to Thingy, that asshole. Ken Livingston. This anti-Semite yeah. dickhead. Um, Ken Livingston. And then he won and then was beaten by Boris Johnson. But like, I have this wonderful idea of like, basically that was a fucking moment. You know, that's a fucking black swan moment <laughs> if you ever wanted to identify one. It's like, what we could have had with Glenda Jackson as mayor of London and then presumptive prime minister at this point. <laughs> um... <laughs> Because, you know, like, of course... French um, newspaper writers murdered in bars yeah, across, yeah. like, other nation. Her loss, to, her loss to, um, to fucking Ken Livingston was, one, um, led to the victory of Boris Johnson in the mayoral mm. election, but also 
was the greatest kind of like one of the greatest thorns in the side of Jeremy Corbyn um, because as as we've recently learned in the fucking like engineered outrage of the Labour anti-Semitism scandal where, Bor- where Ken Livingston despite being a fucking shit was actively kept on by Tom Watson, the deputy leader of the party, with the deliberate intention of disgracing Jeremy Corbyn by making him look like he was keeping an anti-Semite in power, um, to to effectively cost them the 2017 election. But had that not happened, you know, we might have like, I don't know, like, we would have like a kind of like Corbyn-Glenda Jackson coalitioning. Glenda Jackson, I just like, I'm going to link it out in the show notes that we never do. But go look at, like... So, when history was being rewritten, as it often is, following the death of Margaret Thatcher in 2013, (laughs) everyone was like, oh, you know, she kept the country together, all these fucking Labourite neoliberal ass shit fuck assholes. Even, like, To use a technical term. Yeah. (laughs) Across the political (laughs) spectrum... We're like, oh, you know, she kept the country going. She was actually really good. And then Glenda Jackson just stands up in Parliament. It was like, no, this fucking bitch. Like, how fucking dare you rewrite history like this? This is, this is fucking Hitlerian, the level of bullshit that is coming out here. Um, she was a terrible woman. And I dare, you know, and she, was, she got a bit weird in that speech and said that she didn't even want to call Margaret Thatcher a woman, which was... Mm. Let's just let's leave let's that. Just leave yeah. that. But, but yeah, Glenda Jackson. We would, mm. She would at least be mayor of London in a Corbyn yeah. prime ministry, and it would be a great. I have no real reason for mentioning this at all here, except that um, yesterday I got quite, um, I got quite bored towards the end of my uh, working day, and I ended up just reading about the Falklands War on Wikipedia for no particular reason. And it led me down the rabbit hole of eventually watching the video of the Diana Gould Margaret Thatcher exchange on um, Nationwide, and I think this is possibly like the longest I've just like looked at like just steady footage of Margaret Thatcher's face and just being, dear God, what terrifying inhuman entity this is like it is like um very much is clearly someone who like one of those people who like if no matter what period of history she occurred in would have been more or less always evil somehow like just because of like every sort of like weird little complex in their personality would have always led it to be exactly the person that she's she not is. she's, she's like she, the boys she, from Brazil. she's a, she's nice to lost trill children's all i'm saying <laughs> <laughs> wait did that you- that that remark makes no sense to the audience, Max. You have to explain that. Okay. Okay. So, due to my family background, which we won't be going into, I was once lost in the House of Lords as a seven-year-old, crying, and a very nice woman found me and took me back to my parents and comforted me. And that woman was Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> and this this led to several years of me erroneously claiming, "Oh no, Margaret Thatcher's a really nice person." And then I did the most, the most small amount of research, and I realised, no. I mean, like, Hitler was very kind to animals. But, uh, yeah, I'm not an animal, I'm a seven-year-old. But I have been... The point I'm making is... Maybe maybe I I shouldn't make any of these points. (laughs) Maybe this isn't the time or the place. Hey, it so rarely is. It's going to make the point that Mike White Hitler's a good guy. No, no, I wasn't saying Hitler's a good guy. I'm saying Margaret Thatcher's a terrible woman. Much like so, moving on from Lucy's endorsement of of Adolf Hitler. (laughs) (laughs) 
let's wrap this up. This has gone terrible. Um, Much like how the film Maratzard eventually ends in an orgy of chaos and disruption and violence, so this podcast has eventually degenerated into insanity, madness, and Thatcher apologism. Godwin's Law has wreaked its... <laughs> oh, jeez. Uh, Wait, is this the weird signal to bash pipeline that we <laughs> so much about on Twitter? <laughs> Um, I, I don't know how we're gonna how this is gonna really relate to it, but for since it's been we've been so focused on the French Revolution and its various ups and downs, to put it politely, there's a quote from Mark Twain from his book A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court that I feel is actually pretty apropos for the French Revolution in general. And for closing out this monstrosity that this podcast has become. Indeed. The French Revolution might not be over, but this podcast certainly is. Uh, What's it called? Um, Anyway, so in the words of Mark Twain, there were two reigns of terror, if we would but remember it and consider it. The one wrought murder in hot passion, the other in heartless cold blood. The one lasted mere months, the other had lasted a thousand years. The one inflicted death upon 10,000 persons, the other upon a hundred millions. But our shudders are all for the horrors of the minor terror, the momentary terror, so to speak. Whereas, what is the horror of swift death by the axe compared with lifelong death from hunger, cold, insult, cruelty and heartbreak? What is swift death by lightning compared with death by slow fire at the stake? A city cemetery could contain the coffins filled by that brief terror which we have been so diligently taught to shiver at and mourn over. But all France could hardly contain the coffins filled by that older and real terror. That unspeakably bitter and awful terror which none of us have been taught to see in its vastness or pity as it deserves. Which, if we're looking for an argument for what Marat or Desada are going for, is right there. Or indeed if we want to talk about like... Hamas versus the IDF. Or indeed, like, gentrification. Yeah, <laughs> or indeed that. Or indeed, like, kind of the incel community versus Tumblrite. Versus women. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it also occurs oh, to me that, although this is the podcast War Things Zero Weird and Hauntological, this, this episode's been none of those things. It has just been politics and history, and I, I hope it's been a pleasant diversion for you, listener, because... Yeah. I would like to yeah. personally apologise. Me too, I feel like I kind of got a bit too far in many of those things. Shall we, uh, shall we sign off at that? Yeah, so until next time, dear listener, Max and I are going to do it simultaneously, keep it weird, and you're going to say, and stay sick now. Yeah. So, until next time, Fine. listener. <laughs> One more time. Okay. Until next time. <laughs> okay, a third time. Yeah. Till next time, listener. Keep it weird and stay safe. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We can stop recording now. Uh, wait, Sean, do you want to do a final clap? So, like, on zero, three. <laughs> okay, fuck it. You can see. How much dearer ago we have got We can say what we like Without labour or fear